That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, college... Football in the NFL, we have long thought, you know, there's real differences between these things. And I know it's become more challenging to see them, but one of the glaring differences between the NFL and college football is on display right now. This, the Los Angeles, I almost called them the San Diego Chargers, the Los Angeles Chargers have uh, interviewed David Shaw for their head coaching vacancy. The Chargers tweeted it out. Now, colleges don't do this. They don't say, hey, guess what? We just interviewed this guy. Now we're going to pivot and interview the next guy. But they don't. David Shaw, former Stanford coach, interview job. This comes after Jim Harbaugh has interviewed for the head coaching job of the Chargers. And now we're hearing that former Titans head coach Mike Vrabel may also interview for the Chargers job. Now... You may believe that the Spanos family doesn't know what they're doing, and it might it might prove true. Of the 32 NFL owners, the Spanos family probably not going to rank in the top two-thirds. They're a bottom third ownership group. Really heavy-handed. But the Chargers job has emerged as one of the best open vacancies. Patriots, Seahawks. Falcons, Chargers, Raiders, Washington Commanders, Titans, Panthers. Of the vacancies that are out there, the Chargers job has emerged as one of the better ones, and it's a little surprising to me given the Spanos family and their involvement. They um, they are uh, in the way of success. Um, you know, the, As much as ownership groups want to drive success, sometimes the owner's in the way. Trailblazers fans, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Mike McCoy, Anthony Lynn, both each lasted four seasons without without winning uh, more than a playoff game. Brandon Staley um, did uh, did not do well. So the the new coach is going to inherit, uh, you know, uh, a, a losing entity. Uh, but the Chargers have something that the Atlanta Falcons, the Seahawks, the Patriots, the Raiders, the Commanders, Titans. And Panthers do not have. The Chargers have Justin Herbert. And so I kind of want to kick that around off the top of the show today because you watch Justin Herbert play college ball, and I think he is one of those few players, and there have been some in the state of Oregon. Marcus Mariota comes to mind. Um, I think Brandon Cooks at Oregon State comes to mind. But there's been players, Stephen Jackson maybe too at Oregon State, that that we have all watched play, and I think even whether you're a Duck fan or you're a Beaver fan, you you can do only one thing. You can only go, hey, this guy is going to be successful at the next level. He's so talented. 
He's so good. It was classy to see him play, even if he was in the other team's uniform. I think there were a lot of Beaver fans who rooted and thought highly of Marcus Mariota when he won the Heisman Trophy, Oregon State. What did they do? They took out a full-page ad in the newspaper and said, hey, congratulations to Marcus Mariota. Now uh, we both have a Heisman Trophy winner, uh, a nod to Terry Baker and Oregon State's history. But the Chargers have a top-five statistical offense. Justin Herbert, since he arrived, uh, has has done all right. But Justin Herbert's problem in the professional football has been largely the same problem that he encountered in college football. Remember, he had Mark Helfrich as a head coach, got fired. Willie Taggart as a head coach, left. Mario Cristobal as a head coach, okay, great, that lasted for a couple seasons. Justin Herbert goes to the NFL, goes through, uh, you know, Anthony Lynn, Mike McCoy, Brandon Staley. I mean, it's just been more disruption after disruption. And so I'm kind of left thinking and wondering, like, even though the Chargers have a salary cap issue, even though they're not going to have a lot of money in free agency, they have the thing that these other teams do not, that, that coaches know. They know it's a quarterback-centric game, and they are, are well aware, David Shaw in particular, well aware that Justin Herbert is the kind of quarterback that can help you uh, get to the next level in the NFL. Now, I am a little surprised that David Shaw is in this conversation, and I'm kicking myself for not seeing that coming because he walks away from college football, and I guess the prevailing thought was, hey, he's done coaching, he's thrown in the keys. But as we now uh, have seen with Nick Saban and other, some other high-level basketball coaches retiring, we have, you know, it's, it's just a different game in college football. And a lot of the coaches who were at schools that had inherent disadvantages – have thrown in the keys and have said, hey, that era of basketball or that era of football that I succeeded in is no longer. It doesn't exist anymore. And so David Shaw makes a lot of success, a lot of sense in the NFL. Um, I want to kick this around. 503-417-7575. Justin Herbert and the Chargers, do they break through? Who do you who would you hire? Is Jim Harbaugh the right coach? Is it Shaw? Is it Vrabel? Because as much as I want to say, hey, go with Vrabel because the Chargers have had a top-five offense and a bottom-five defense. Herbert's 30-32 and 32 since he's been a starter, and he's driven uh, the success in those 30 wins. But, you know, the Chargers have not had a run game, not, not a consistent run game. They have not had a good offensive line, and they have not won the AFC West since 2009, uh, and Patrick Mahomes in that division makes it tough. But Justin Herbert's allure is enough to bring in the right coach and the right GM. So the question is, if you have your choice between Jim Harbaugh, David Shaw, Mike Brabel, for me it's a Harbaugh-Shaw conversation. Who do you go with? 503-417-7575. You get to play owner of an NFL team. Who do you chase after? Who do you go with? we got a great show for you today. Uh, we're going to take a look at Pac-12 officiating. Why is it still a thing? Why is the Pac-12 officiating still a thing? Last night's Arizona State-UCLA basketball game turned into a debacle. Bobby Hurley upset about it. We'll play some audio from Hurley coming up. We'll hear from uh, Chris Cartman, who was courtside at the game as a reporter. Um, I, I have found out some things about this basketball game, and I, I, I hesitate to say this. It's going to surprise absolutely nobody, but it feels to me like the Pac-12 conference is at sleep at the wheel. 
They are sleeping and snoozing, and they're on autopilot, and uh, some of that reared its head last night in Tempe as Arizona State blew a 15-point second-half lead. We'll talk Pac-12 officiating, not just basketball, but football. Some problems moving forward for the Pac-12 officials who worked in the conference. And frankly, I'm a little concerned about the men's basketball games tonight and throughout the remainder of the season. We'll also go to Los Angeles. Will Daniel Popper of The Athletic will join us in the 4 o'clock hour to talk about Herbert and sort of the prognosis short-term and long-term as it pertains to the Chargers quarterback situation. Now, Stephen, I'm going to put you in the seat, you in the chair. You're like the team president of the Chargers. You're the owner of the Chargers. You're the decision maker for the Chargers. You have your choice between David Shaw, Jim Harbaugh, maybe Mike Vrabel. You've got Justin Herbert in the fold. What do you do? You know what? I think for me, it's either Harbaugh or Vrabel. I actually would lean Vrabel over all of these guys. And there's a specific reason why is if Justin Herbert is the man, and, and we all believe it, we all saw it in Oregon, we've all seen the NFL, the talent that he has, he has never had an experienced coach. You go back and you look at the Chargers head coaches. Brandon Staley, it was his first head coaching job. Anthony Lynn, first head coaching job. Even going back before, Mike McCoy, first head coaching job. Those are the last three coaches that they've had. They were all unsuccessful because they just missed on those hires. The coaches before, it was Norv Turner, Mario Schottenheimer. They were veteran coaches that they brought in, and they had success. I think for the Chargers, they need to have a guy that has been successful in the NFL, and that's Jim Harbaugh. That is uh, Mike Vrabel. David Shaw, look, I think he's. I think he'd be a really good NFL coach. I always thought when he was at Stanford, he could be a better NFL coach than a college coach, but he's unproven at the NFL level as a head coach. Harbaugh's got to the Super Bowl. Vrabel's got to the AFC title game. I think if I'm the Chargers... I have to get somebody in there that I know can coach on the highest levels in the NFL as a head coach. Now, don't go with a mystery. Don't go with a random where it could be really bad again for Justin Herbert. Get him a guy that you know you can trust, that you know that can turn around a program. I would lean Vrabel because he's the defensive guy. I feel like the fact that he got Ryan Tannehill to the AFC title game and he had, you know, he had offensive guys that were not very good. He just led that defense. And now you give him a guy like Justin Herbert, you give him those offensive weapons that they have, you know, Austin Eckler, Mike Williams, Quentin Johnston, Keaton Allen, if they bring him back. I think for me, it's Vrabel. I think he's the number one guy from the Chargers, but it's either Vrabel or Harbaugh, John, because I, I just got to have somebody with experience and someone that's done it before. I, I can't, I can't go with another guy that is unproven. When I have a guy like Justin Herbert and we have him long-term, you got to win with him. I cringed when I saw Vrabel's name. And I understand why the Spanos family probably wants to interview him. They probably are saying, look, we got to get a guy in here who has a proven track record as a defensive-minded coach. And Vrabel is. But I cannot unsee what he did to Marcus Mariota in his tenure in Tennessee. And some of that, look... Let, let me step even further back. Some of that is on Mariota. And uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, as I look at that, I got I to gotta admit, Marcus Mariota, for his time either in Atlanta or in Las Vegas or, you know, wherever he has backed up and been in this league, he just hasn't had the success that I thought he would have um, from go. Uh, but I blame Vrabel for I thought that he mishandled that completely. Um I think that uh, I think you have to look at Shaw because I think his his coaching style and people will criticize and say, look what he did at Stanford. He didn't have great success at Stanford. Look at everything he did in 2019 and beyond at Stanford. He just kind of fell off a cliff. But Stanford, college football changed. And that Stanford job became a 
disadvantaged job in this era of transfer portal and NIL. It wasn't like Stanford was going to go into the portal and get anybody. They couldn't. The admissions department would not allow Stanford to take players that could easily get in at other schools. And so, you know, Shaw was at a disadvantage, as was Justin Wilcox at Cal. But nobody was more disadvantaged than David Shaw. And and I, I still think, you know, yes, he fell off. But I think his style translates well to the NFL. And I think he knows who Justin Herbert is because he coached against him. And I, and to me, that kind of gets me excited about seeing David Shaw as a potential interviewee. Do you, do you worry about the fact that he's never been a head coach at the NFL before? The Chargers have tried this, and it hasn't worked. So if he can't, you're because it's, it's an educated guess that he could be a really good coach. I think he can as well, but he has no proven track record of it. Maybe he's not a good coach. Does that affect your thought at all? I, I think his dad's experience in the NFL and his own experience you know, you know as an assistant in the NFL are enough. But I also, when I saw the interviewee, I couldn't, I couldn't help but think, are the Chargers bringing in David Shaw just to create some leverage with Jim Harbaugh? Because maybe Harbaugh's the guy they really want, but they don't want to get held over a barrel. And so what do you do? You bring in the guy that followed Harbaugh at Stanford, who had some success there, and you bring him in as a uh, potential candidate that could come in and make Harbaugh not the no-brainer. Hey, we, you know, we we got to just throw everything at you. You're going to get all the money. You're going to get all the control. You know, maybe the Chargers are trying to push back a little bit by bringing in Shaw and Vrabel. But gosh, how refreshing is it to see any kind of football program or franchise in a position to hire a coach who's advertising who they're interviewing? Like, can you imagine if Oregon had done this when? You know, it went out and hired Dan Lanning. Like, hey, here are the candidates. Here's who we interviewed. Like, I had to work really hard to get all that information. Where was Rob Mullins? Where he was in Texas? Who was he interviewing? You know, did when then when they gave uh, Mario Cristobal the job? You know, he was interviewing Kevin Sumlin and Brian Harson. And you know, I was working my butt off to get all that information. And here the Chargers are tweeting out. We just interviewed David Shaw, and I was like, whoa. I think back to the Jonathan Smith situation. Like, think about that. Think about if it came out that Jonathan Smith had been interviewing with Michigan State while he was still at Oregon State. Like, that would have blown up everything. At a quarter. I mean, they were already so pissed at him the way he left. I mean, think about if they knew he was out there looking for jobs. Can you imagine Michigan State tweeting right before the Civil War? You know, we've we've just talked with Jonathan Smith for our hours, coaching yeah. vacancy, and it, and it goes bananas. Like, you know, you know how the injury reports in the NFL are a thing. There's just a transparency in the NFL that sometimes is alarming. And in and I know why they do injury reports and the teams get fined if they don't follow the injury report correctly. They do it, you know, in, in part because it creates a level playing field, doesn't allow for the gamesmanship, but mostly because they have gambling partnerships and, and their gambling partners want them to do that. Um and I also think there's just a little bit of more of a hey, we're a professional league. We're just we're not going to have to be secretive about who we are. And clearly, Chargers fans are probably jazzed about, hey, it's Harbaugh, it's Shaw, it's Vrabel. These are good candidates. This isn't the same tired retread factory that you get seen, you know, put out there for these other jobs. And and I have to say, as I went through the other jobs and I was kind of going, what sets the Chargers apart? It's not ge- geography. It's not that their division is soft, not with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs in there. It's Justin Herbert. You know, and I think, you know, Atlanta's probably the second most attractive job, maybe the Seahawks after that. And then it starts to go downhill. And the problem you have with these other jobs like New England and the Raiders, you know, the Raiders don't have a quarterback. And 
they don't have a great opportunity to get one in the draft. They're picking 13th. And so you're in a division, if you're the Raiders, with Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Sean Payton in Denver, and you you got to try to find a way to win it without a quarterback. And so I think, you know, as much as, like, Mark Davis might be willing to give control to a coach or a GM, I think it's going to be really hard for him to have, you know, Jim Harbaugh or David Shaw or Mike Vrabel interested because Vrabel, what did he just go through? Kind of just in Tennessee kind of went through it's not Marcus Mariota, it's not Ryan Tannehill, oh, I'm out of a job. And and I think, you know, the commander's job is the least attractive, you know, to me. But I think you you look at those jobs and you go, okay, it's kind of the, the Chargers job is, is the best job, despite what people say. And I think it has to do with Justin Herbert being there. Now, now I know we get attached to what we see. It's like Hannibal Lecter, he said it best. He said to Clarice Starling, he said, you know, what does Buffalo Bill covet? He covets what he sees. It's true. As sports fans and as sports media, yes, I'm drawing a comparison with a serial killer. Uh, we, we, we like what we see. We always covet what we see. People who grew up in the Michael Jordan era are going to say Jordan's the best player who ever lived. Kids today who are growing up are going to either say it was LeBron or it was, it was Kobe or they're going to point to Nikola Jokic, and they're going to say nobody was better. But we all know it was Jordan, because I saw him, right? And and for people of another era, you might have a different answer. You might say Bill Russell if you're older. But we covet what we see, and I know that it becomes very easy to look at what Justin Herbert did at the University of Oregon and just be like, gosh, he was lights out. He was so good. It was so much fun to watch him and get attached to that. But, damn, I, I am just waiting for one of these quarterbacks – Marcus Mariota, Derek Anderson, Joey Harrington, Justin Herbert, Sean Mannion. I'm waiting for one of these quarterbacks to have a great pro career and kind of validate what they did. And I think Herbert, you know, he's got all the tools. He's carried that offense. The fact that they're 30 and 32 has nothing to do with Justin Herbert. It has everything to do with the fact that he's got no offensive line, no run game, and no defense. Good luck. Go get him. So I kind of think, to me, to answer my own question, Jim Harbaugh is the best pick. I think the second best pick is to take a chance on David Shaw. I'll put Vrabel third. Maybe I'm tainted by the Mariota experience. But I just think going with a defensive-minded guy, maybe not the answer here. Like, defense first all the way. I think Harbaugh would benefit his style of coaching, the offense he wants to run. He wants a pocket passer. He wants to run a lot of, you know, Extra tight ends on the field. He'll, you know, he's not afraid to give extra protection. Like we've seen the kind of play that that he wants to do. We saw it at Stanford with Andrew Luck, and we saw it, uh, frankly, it's uh, in in at Michigan in the national title game. You know, he wants to run the ball, and he wants to have a, a quarterback that can that can hurt you. And to me, that's Justin Herbert. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Punch it audio is coming up four o'clock hour. We'll drill deep on the Chargers. Daniel Popper, the Athletic, will be with us. We'll we'll focus really on Justin Herbert's career trajectory uh, for Duck fans and interested parties. You'll want to be here at four o'clock. And in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk some Pac-12 basketball and football. Leave it here. DeAndre Ayton did not make it to the Blazers game last night. I'm not laughing at him, am I? He didn't make it. Is that an excusable? The Blazers say they sent people over to him, couldn't get out. His driveway was like a sheet of ice. I understand uh, 
I understand what that's like. Our driveway was that way as well. But if it was your job to be at an NBA game, do you think, you know, you could allow ice capades to be part of the excuse why you weren't at the NBA game? Uh, it's being called an embarrassment. Deadspin made fun of it. Uh, Blazers uh, unable to participate last night because he could not navigate the ice around his house. I understand it. I have a hill right by my house. It was a sheet of ice yesterday, and even this morning. I had a guy who had to come over to the house because he had to fix a pipe that had uh, exploded that was outside because of the freezing temperatures, and he had a truck, and he came down my driveway, and I have about a you know, 100-foot driveway that comes down to the house, and it's kind of a downward slope, and he got to the bottom of it, and I said, do you have four-wheel drive? And he said, nope. And this was like 10, 11 a.m. this morning, okay? And I said to him, okay, when you when you go to leave, I'm going to go up the hill, and I'm going to try to break up some of the ice on the driveway because I don't think you're going to be able to get back up. And he barely made it out. Like yesterday, wouldn't have been able to make it out. Today, he got to the top, his wheels were spinning, and he barely got out. But DeAndre Ayton, how bad is that, Stephen, in your mind, that he couldn't be at the Blazers game last night? Um, first of all, I think it's pretty funny. Like, it's a funny story that happened, that he couldn't get out because of ice, and you know, he's stuck in his house. I think, I don't know, call me call me crazy, because I, you know, I'm a guy that can drive around in the snow and ice. Like, I, I don't mind it. I know that some people can't do it, and I know DeAndre Ayton, you know, he, I believe he was born in the Bahamas, played at Arizona, like, played in Phoenix, hasn't really been around a lot of ice, so it's understandable. I feel like somebody could have got him, right? Like, some some low-level scout, they couldn't just send him out and say, hey, go get DeAndre Ayton and get him here to the arena. Like, he didn't have to drive. I feel like they could have gotten him out. It's just, I don't know, it... It seems weird for a guy who makes $32.5 million a year to be like, I can't show up because of the ice and the snow, but everyone else can. I, I don't know, John. I felt but, like it was a little The Blazers weird. sent, they say they sent someone to his house and they couldn't access it either. But here's my thing I remember Dale Davis. Remember Dale Davis, former Blazer center, big guy. He lived in Lake Oswego. He happened to have a driveway that was very similar. And he had an incident one winter where he couldn't get out of his house either. He got on the ground and crawled and crawled out of his house, crawled to the driveway, called a taxi or another. Maybe the team sent transportation. But I remember Dale Davis making it to the game. If if that's your job to show up, I think um, you got to find a way. And. and or stay in a hotel by the arena. To your point, Damon Stoudemire did tweet out, uh, it happened to Dale Davis. He almost killed himself trying to get from the west side to the arena. This is tricky, but I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. So Damon is on the side of DeAndre Ayton yeah. in that situation because Players. of that. Also, I, d- it may have to do with the fact that um, DeAndre Ayton has had knee injuries. Like That's what he was injured with before. Yes. So I think that may be a thing that he may have been worried about. Like, hey, I don't even want to risk it. I don't want to slip on this ice because you know I did slip and fall. So I don't want, you know, maybe that's a reason. But I'm with you. I feel like there's got you got to get there man you're making 32 and a half million bucks you got to find a way to the arena somehow is he out of the house yet do we know but it, it, here's the other thing he's seven feet tall i do think it's a different equation for a seven foot tall guy who's got knee problems and i'll be honest i've had three knee surgeries i i don't tend to do well either and i find myself i have a pair of boots that have spikes on the bottom of them i 
if I don't have those on, it, like in the last two days, I can't walk around outside because I am a I am a slip risk. And and is the weather pretty much gone? Like yesterday, you fell down twice, Stephen. You said you fell down twice. Has the weather rectified itself to this point for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the sidewalks were not very icy today. There's just a couple slippery spots, you know, just here and there. But, um, you know, I, the side roads are still pretty bad, I thought, when I was driving in. But every main road was very clear, very good to drive on. And even, like I said, the sidewalks were easier to walk on. So I feel like uh, we're getting there. We're not quite there 100% yet, John, but... We're getting fully, uh, getting close to get fully back to uh, no, no disasters anywhere. The schools are still; they canceled all today, so all the moms, moms are all mad. All the parents are losing their minds because their kids are out of school. But um, it is just funny when there's money attached to it, like an NBA game, and you got, you know, I don't know how many thousand fans. They they'll say, you know, they had eighteen thousand or fifteen thousand at the arena. We know it's not true, but thousands of fans showed up. Um, some other players showed up. And here's the thing, like I, you know, I talked about this. Uh, what was it yesterday? Just sort of the preparation element when you have conditions like this. If you know it's going to be bad, and you're an NBA player who's making the money that Aiton's making, and it's your responsibility to be at the arena, you're either in a hotel that can get to the arena, or you got some equipment that can help get you to the arena. That's those are the two occasions. And, you know, I had a friend of mine yesterday who said, oh, it's no worry because Aiton hasn't showed up all season long. <laughs> the Blazers. I mean, it didn't. Not it, that big yeah, a deal. That's the thing. Like on the court. Yeah, it may not even have hurt the Blazers that much to not have DeAndre Aiton on the court. But I feel like, you know, he's got to you got to get there. Right, John? I mean, 32 million. You got to find a way to get there. You're right. Just stay in a hotel somewhere. Someone could have got you there. It is, it's before. bad, though. I mean, some I don't know his residence, but, you know. If that's your case, he should have had some boots with some spikes on it. How come I have some and he doesn't? You know, find a way to get the equipment that, so you can get where you need to go. And it's, it's a great excuse though, because if it's you know, even it's true or not, like everyone's been in that situation where it's like, oh man, I I can't even walk in this spot. Like we've all seen that and been in that situation where we've seen the ice and it's impossible to get out. So it's, I think it was a great excuse if it was that's what it was for DeAndre Ayton. It, it, but it, you know what it does? It, it affects and it damages our entire reputation as a region. Because, you know, what everybody says, all these people are from Chicago, whatever, they go, oh, just a little snow and look what happens in Portland. NBA players can't even get to the arena. But as Matt Safino from KGW, the meteorologist, pointed out yesterday, um, look, it's, uh, it's a different animal here. It's freezing ice. It's hills. It's different than Chicago and people being used to driving in it. Charlie's in Vancouver. Charlie, you got a thought on this. Go ahead. I think it shows a complete lack of competitiveness and basically character. I mean, when you put that together with how it all ended in Phoenix with Monty Williams not even really wanting to play him in games, I think we got a guy who really doesn't love the game at all, just loves really being rich and hasn't shown a competitive desire. Again, if you're looking forward to playing in the game, dude, it's easy. I mean, again, those those little thing, wraparounds that come on the bottom of your shoes are 10 bucks at Costco. Get one. And, again, studded snow tires will get you there. I took people to the worst places in all of the uh, Tri-County area the last three days. And all I got is a little front-wheel drive with studded tires on it. Come on, Aiton, you can do better. Look, and, and again, I if you had asked me two days ago, hey, all-staff meeting downtown Portland – I couldn't have got up in my driveway, even with my four-wheel drive. It was just an ice sheet, and I couldn't, you know, the car was stuck, stuck in my driveway. Um, I, 
if you tell me I'm making $30 million and I'm an NBA player and it's my job to be there for a game, and that's one eighty-second of my salary is going to be made that night, um, I'm on my hands and knees crawling through the driveway and then finding a way beyond that. And so I, I do put some of that on him. And I just think, you know, fair or not, because it may not be fair, fair or not, it's him and, and the problems he had in Phoenix do kind of swirl in the back of your mind when you're having that moment. It's not like it's Damian Lillard. And he goes, I can't get out of my house. People would be like, damn, it must be bad. Yeah, that, you know what I mean? And that's the point is that it's DeAndre Ayton. There's already questions of what he what he provides to a basketball team and does he actually care about the game. Well, this doesn't help your arguments if you're arguing for DeAndre Ayton uh, that he wants to actually be here and want to play for the team. Let's play some punch it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, DeAndre didn't make it, but the Blazers did. 105-103 over the Nets. Blazers got win number 11 on the season. Here's how it sounded as Amphrey Simons had the game winner. Punch it. And Bridges is on him. Kamara trying to get a switch there. Simons comes out. Bridges comes out with Simons. Here is Simons for the win. Drives into the lane. Running right in. Oh, Simons, the runner. Amphrey Simons in the Blazers. Now 11 and 29. Simons had 20 plus four assists. Blazers got 30 from Jeremy Grant, who's getting it done. Chauncey Billups broke down the final game-winning shot. Punch it. Yeah, that was the play uh, to get it to Ant. I just wanted to make sure that no matter what, you know, it was a perfectly executed play. The guys executed it just beautifully. They really did, and Ant shot the ball. I told him, we need to get the last shot. You know, we don't want to get him a shot at it. I mean, and you can't do it. It's just, you know, Ant was, it was beautiful. I mean, point two on the clock. Um, even if he misses that shot, I mean, point two, they got a, they got us dang near a miracle for them to make a shot uh, for us against us. We just go in overtime with him again, but and hit a big time shot. Hit a big time shot. Uh, Blazers one hundred five, Nets one hundred three. Not all was lost. Maybe they didn't need DeAndre. Raptors head coach. No, I'm going to move this. Peter King. Let's go to the NFL. Peter King talking about Mike Vrabel. He thinks he'd be right for the Seahawks. We were talking about different NFL coaching jobs. Here's Peter King on the Seahawks. Punch it. John Schneider, he's not going to be uh, forced into doing anything. I think the best guy for that job, without any question, is Mike Vrabel. Mike Vrabel will be perfect with a guy like John Schneider. Because John Schneider is a really good personnel guy. He'll find a quarterback for Mike Vrabel. All he, all Mike Vrabel has to do is go and replicate the Legion of Boom. And I'm exaggerating there. But Mike Vrabel is a really, really good defensive coach. Can build a good defense. And even when there's nothing to play for, look what happened with, against Jacksonville. They played that game like it was the seventh game of the World Series. That's what you want in your head coach. There it is. Frable and go find a quarterback. Who is that quarterback? 
Um, you know, there'll be some guys in this draft. There are some players I think that you can get in this draft that might, you know, it, it, beyond Caleb Williams, beyond, uh, you know, Drake May, there's some, uh, beyond Jaden Daniels, you know, there's a Michael Penix Jr. conversation. Maybe there's a Bo Nix conversation later round, you know, mid rounds. But Peter King advocating for Vrabel to the Seahawks. Chris Sims talking about the 49ers. We'll stay in the NFL. 49ers in action this weekend against the Green Bay Packers on Saturday. Punch it. I'm picking the 49ers. Uh, I think the 49ers are in a class of their own in the NFC. I, I do. I think they're a notch above everybody there. I worry, like the Ravens conversation, I worry a little bit about the same things we, we discussed there. Right? I, I don't care who you are and how hard you practice during your bye week and all that. You know, you got one team that, yeah, the, the Packers have been playing playoff football for the last five, six weeks. So they're ready to go. And there could be a little bit of a getting used to being back on the field in this kind of environment moment. But I don't think that's going to last long with the 49ers. I don't. I mean, again, this is another team like the Ravens. I'll even emphasize more. I think this, I mean, on a mission ever since that Eagles game last year. Niners do look focused. I wonder a little bit about the NFC. I'm not sure that the NFC is anywhere near as good or deep as the AFC. We'll find out, I guess, in the Super Bowl. But the 49ers, I think there's a big gap between them and the second and third best teams in the conference. We saw that when they played the Eagles. We saw it when they played the Cowboys. Those games weren't competitive. Uh, I'm, I'm still left thinking about, you know, where the 49ers fit. In the in the NFL picture, I think I agree with Clat that I mean Chris Sims rather that the uh, they're the class of the NFC. But you tell me, is it enough that they are the class of the NFC, or are they going to get to the Super Bowl and run into you know a team that is like the Baltimore Ravens or better? And the Ravens and the Browns and the Bengals all gave the 49ers losses this season. It has me thinking about the AFC right now. Moving to Joel Clad, he has Oregon in his way too early top 10 at number three. Punch it. Oregon's at number three. I've seen a couple way too early top 10s that have them up there, but man, Oregon, folks. Heading into year three with Lanning, he stays, sends that epic tweet out, him smoking the cigar at the end, staying in Eugene. I love that he stayed in Eugene because I believe Oregon moving into the Big Ten, the new era of college football, after what we just saw, after we saw the last three of four national finalists be TCU, Michigan, and Washington, you can do it at Oregon. You don't have to go to the SEC. Dan Lanning didn't have to go to Alabama in order to win at the top end. Dan Lanning can win a national championship at Oregon. I'm convinced of it. Well, you didn't need to convince Joel Klatt. You just needed to convince Dan Lanning, and it's true. The fact that Lanning is so happy has to tell you something. If you're a Duck fan or you're somebody who tracks major college football, you have to look at the actions of Dan Lanning and how happy he is and how he's smiling and smoking cigars and turning in the best recruiting classes that Oregon's ever had. He's got a hell of a collective on his side. He's got a big brand on his side. He's headed to the Big Ten. It all lines up nicely for Dan Lanning and the Ducks. They'll be in a different position next year, though. It's going to be new teams, different position. I still think I think Oregon's going to make the playoff next year. I don't know if they're number three, but I think they make the playoff. All right, coming up, our big splash. Raptors head coach 
uh, with a nod. Uh, what kind of nod is it? Well, it's emotional. You'll hear it next. Sad story uh, this week in the NBA as Warriors assistant Dejan Milo Milojokovic. Milojokovic? Milojovic. I had it during the commercial break. Passed away in a team dinner this week, and his friend and um, the coach of the Toronto Raptors, Darko Ryakovich, gave Dehan a tribute by dedicating the win and the opening play to his fallen friend. It is the subject of our big splash. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Dehan Milojovic. Warriors assistant passed away this week at the age of 46. Way too young. Sad story. Warriors game last night got canceled. Um, Darko Ryukovic, the coach of the Raptors, dedicated the opening play and the victory the Raptors had to his late friend. I told my guys that I loved him. And uh, opening play in a game was ATO that... Um, that Decky, my friend, I learned that play from him, and that's what he brought to NBA. That's what he brought to Golden State. I stole that play from him, and that was our opening play tonight, and we were able to score on that one. So, you know, I dedicated this this team win to our team and and to to Decky. Too often in professional sports, I think we lose sight of the fact that the thing that makes sports special is the heart and the soul of the game. We joke about it and we say, oh, they play for the love of the game. And, and clearly in this moment is you've got Darko Ryakovic giving a nod to his fallen friend. Uh, you can hear the emotion in his voice. Um, really nice moment, you know, and, and what a cool thing to do. When you talk about tributes, um, you know, from one Serbian to another, um, obviously if, uh, you, you know, you have a friend who passes the way – at the age of 46, it's bad news. That's you know not how it's supposed to happen. But uh, Dejan Milojovic, Warriors assistant coach, has the heart attack. And then his friend, coach of the Raptors, with a nod there at the beginning of the game. I, I love that stuff. I love it because it's real. I love it because it reminds us that there are people involved in sports. Because too often we get a little jaded. And I think we're all guilty of it. We start thinking about the players uh, not as people, but as commodities, the asset that is a person's contract, not the, you know, the person themselves. And I think it becomes easy sometimes when we see athletes treating them, treating it that way themselves. Uh, and it becomes so much about money, so much about, um, you know, less about the heart and soul of the game. And so I think it's a nice, uh, nice moment that last night in the NBA and a nice tribute to his friend. Um, the NBA season has, a definite rhythm to it. There's the start of the NBA season. Then, you know, we spend about 15 or 20 games trying to figure out who the good teams are. Then we all start talking about the trade deadline in February. Then once you kind of hit the February trade deadline, 
Um, you know, we have a couple of weeks. Once you hit that mark, then it becomes kind of a, you know, if it's like a 400-meter race, it becomes that final 100 down the stretch. And we kind of look, and now you can start to see, like, who the contenders are in the east. You can kind of see that it's Boston, then maybe Milwaukee. Maybe if Philadelphia can make a move or somebody else can make a move, they can get involved. And in the west, a little bit of a, a different crew with Minnesota and Oklahoma City and Denver up front. It's kind of nice. I, I'm refreshed by what I see in the Western Conference because some of it gives me a little bit of hope. As somebody who's in a smaller market, when you see Minnesota, Oklahoma City, and Denver with the best three records in the West, and not far after that, the fifth best record is New Orleans, and sixth is Sacramento, you know, it's not the Lakers, it's not Dallas, it's not Houston, um, you know, it's not Phoenix. Um, we've got some new teams in the West, Stephen. Is this good for the NBA? Yeah, I, I think it's good because you even talk about the bigger market teams like you know the Lakers and the Warriors. Like they're still in the race, right? And, and I think you know they're huge fan bases, and they're still going to be relevant towards the end of the season because you talk about like you said trade deadline. After that, we're figuring out it's who's going to make the playoff race. All the big time teams are going to be in it, and still they're going to be in that race, going to try to get to that playoff spot. So I'm with you. It's it's nice to see. Uh, and also these smaller market teams be able to build their teams and do it a little bit differently um, than the other teams that they do it. Like you look at the Timberwolves. Yes, they drafted Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns having the first pick in the draft. That helps a couple of years and you get those guys. But then they make a big trade for Rudy Gobert, and that's when they've been elevated. You look at the Oklahoma City Thunder, all theirs has been through the draft and through draft picks. And so you look at these small market teams – they're doing it different type of ways, and the Kings the same way. The Kings went out, they traded for some guys, and they drafted guys. Like they, It's all different. So I think if you're the Blazers, like me, always looking as a Blazer fan, it's good to see that it is possible to do it certain ways and different ways as well. It's not always just going to be the NBA draft, which I always kind of feel like it is. Like You can go out and make a trade to put yourself over the top if you get that draft right. So it gives you hope. It gives you hope as a smaller market team that says, okay, you know, even in the tough Western Conference – you can get up there if you have the right guys, but that's always the problem, and that's the hardest part is getting the right guys in the systems. But right now in the Western Conference, I mean, you can look, and there's probably six, seven teams right now that you can make legitimate cases of how they could win the Western Conference. Give me an idea of, you know, for me, I would love to see like Oklahoma City or Minnesota get to the NBA Finals. And, you know, they're the two teams that are sitting there in the West, but it's not they haven't been dominant. Like they're not running away. I mean, there's just, you know, when you look at the Western Conference, as you mentioned, between Minnesota at one and Sacramento at six, there's six games separating those those top six teams. And in the East, I kind of feel like it's Milwaukee or Boston. And I want to pick Milwaukee because I can see the star power with Damian Lillard and Giannis. But the series like that I think would, you know, compel a, a market like Portland is to see somebody like Minnesota or Oklahoma City get in there and prove that you don't have to be a returning champion. You don't have to have a Nikola Jokic. You you can go out and you can, you know, build a team and build a franchise the way Minnesota and Oklahoma City have. But am I am I being Pollyanna by saying that Minnesota or Oklahoma City could get there and if if Adam Silver's rooting, Steven, he's gotta be rooting for Boston and the Clippers? Is that is that his ideal series? Yeah, I think the Clippers or maybe even the Suns because that has a lot of star power on their team as well. Durant and Beal and Booker, like, but I think you're right with the Clippers. The Clippers 
James Harden, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, L.A., they're going to be getting a new arena here coming soon. I, I think if you're Adam Silver, that's the one team in the Western Conference you would love to have make a run going forward um, over Minnesota or Oklahoma City. And you talk about you know Minnesota Oklahoma City haven't been dominant. While I agree with that, Oklahoma City has by far the biggest point differential in the Western Conference. Like They have been pretty dominant all season long and been one of the best shooting teams and offensive teams in the NBA. Being so young, I, I think it's a little early to say that they're real title contenders, but We've seen it before where uh, you know a team even like Oklahoma City back in the day, Durant, Westbrook, Harden, all these young stars, they all click at one time, they get to the NBA Finals. So it'll be interesting to see in the West who really emerges because there's still a lot of time. I mean, we're halfway through the season. There's going to be some trades to happen. I think in the East, you're right with Boston and Milwaukee. They're the two favorites. I would also say watch out for Philadelphia. They've traded James Harden. They've gotten better since they made that trade addition by subtraction. Gave Tyrese Maxey a lot more freedom to be the number one ball handler, and he's going to be the most improved player in the NBA. Joel Embiid, favorite to be the MVP again. That's how good he has been. They have a lot of room to make another trade for another really good player. And in that James Harden trade, they got some role players, which they haven't had before. And then ultimately, they got rid of Doc Rivers. Nick Nurse is their head coach. So I think Philly is a team to watch in the Eastern Conference as well, but it's down to those three teams in the East. And it's wide open in the West, John. You're right. Like, it could be numerous teams. So I'm excited for the rest of this season, man. It, it the, You're right, because we're halfway through the season. It's about halfway through this race. Now we're going to lead up to the trade deadline. That's another 100 meters, and then it's going to be the 100-meter sprint to the end. Boston's 20-0 and 0 at home. Like They have not lost at home. They're 12-9 They're twelve and nine on the road. And I, and I saw that, and I went, gosh, you know, not a very good road team. And then I started looking, going, wait a minute, that's the second-best road record in the NBA, the first being the Timberwolves at 13-9. and nine. So great teams still can't win on the road in the NBA. And so much of that, I think, is, uh, you know, the players, the officiating, the fans. It's just still an NBA game, isn't it? Leave it here. Everybody's slowly getting back into rhythm. I think when kids are back in school, it'll be all, all that, all the same. Uh, for uh, For people streaming the show... We've had some weather here. People have been dealing with some stuff. Power outages, frozen roadways. You know what they're not dealing with frozen roadways? Southern California. Daniel Popper covers the Chargers for The Athletic. He's joining us now. Daniel, how are you, man? Set the scene for us in Southern California. I'm doing great. It is a little bit overcast here. The sun is not out, so we're dealing with a truly terrible weather day here by LA standards. We um, hate you. I wonder how that can. I wonder how that compares to where yeah. you're at in Portland right now. I'll text you a picture of my driveway later. But uh, let, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about this vacancy. Um, I have not seen teams openly advertise who they're interviewing, and Chargers tweeting out David Shaw in for inter- interview, Jim Harbaugh, Mike Vrabel. Um, why so public with it? What What's the advantage in that? Yeah, I think from the Chargers' perspective, they, they really love being transparent with their fan base. I think they're in a, a sort of a unique position, you know, moving to L.A. and really having to make inroads in the market. And so they've taken a relatively unique approach as far as how they want to connect with their fan base. You know, they've had their own, you know, documentary program that they produce in-house that's had a lot of inside looks into meeting rooms and that sort of thing. And so I think from a brand management, from a PR standpoint, like they feel like being as transparent as possible with their fan base is going to, you know, help them ingratiate themselves as they try and make inroads in the new market. And I think that's what it what it sort of comes down to. The the interview of David Shaw 
Chargers serious about Shaw, or are they trying to uh, leverage Jim Harbaugh? How do you uh, how do you see Shaw's involvement? Yeah, you know, I think that the Chargers from day one of this search have been really open about the fact that they want to cast a wide net. Those were the exact words from President of Football Operations John Spanos. And they just announced the Vrabel interview. You know, right now they're at 11 interviews done. Um, they have four more requests out reportedly. So by the end of this thing, they could be, you know, at 15 head coaching interviews. And so I think they're really trying to, you know, gather as much information as possible. Like they're really trying to reimagine from the ground up like what the structure looks like after going through 11 seasons with the same general manager, the same structure. And so I think they're just trying to bring in people that they think are smart, that have had success, um, and trying to figure out, you know, who the best candidate is, what are the best ideas, how do you build a culture, what are the important things, all of that stuff. And obviously David Shaw did a fantastic job of that in Stanford. Now I think there are obviously some ulterior motives here. Um, you know, like the Rooney rule is a thing, right? And so you do have to do – two in-person interviews with minority candidates before you can make any hire. And as it stands right now, you know, they can't interview any team, any candidates that are employed by a team until after the divisional round, which is Monday at the earliest. And so in order to be Rooney rule compliant before Monday, they have to find minority candidates that aren't currently employed by NFL teams. I think that's a factor. And then additionally, you're talking about a guy in David Shaw that's obviously very close with Harbaugh, worked under him, coached under him at Stanford before he took over the head coaching job. And I think that obviously is a factor too. Like the one thing I will say is like interviews in the NFL are not always about, you know, this is a candidate that we're considering hiring. A lot of it can be information gathering. And if there is an interview that comes up that you're like, why would they interview that guy? Well, you know, a lot of the times teams will interview coaches from teams that they're playing in the, few, in the next season, for example, and try and mine for information. So it is partly looking for your candidate, but part of it, too, is trying to mine for information, whether that's for future seasons or for, in the Chargers case, more trying to figure out how to build their structure and the best way to move forward. Jim Harbaugh is probably going to want control. How is the Spanos family on that front as far as are they yeah. ready to relinquish some control of the roster and hand the thing, hand the operation over to a coach, or will they want to still keep uh, some oversight? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think the Chargers are reticent to give a head coach that kind of personnel power. Like, I think that they look at somebody like Bill Belichick, for example, who was head coach and de facto GM throughout his time in New England, and I think they feel like that's probably a little bit too much responsibility. Um, but they are open to different structures, right? Like I think, like I said, Tom Telesco, their former GM, was there for 11 seasons. He was a Bill Polian guy, and he ran the organization like Bill Polian did, you know, an iron fist. Everything flowed through the GM. It was a very GM-centric approach to building the team. I think they look at it and say, you know, look at the Lions, for example, what they've been able to do, bringing in Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell in simultaneously, building it collaboratively, I think they would love a scenario like that, but obviously Jim Harbaugh with where he's at coming off a national championship with a big extension on the table from Michigan, they're going to have to sweeten the pot a little bit. And I think that they might have to in the end relent as far as personnel control. And then the interesting thing is like, okay, if you do give personnel control to the head coach, what are you going to do at GM? Because it does limit your options there. Like there are obviously a lot of great candidates out there, but all of the great candidates are going to want a job where they come in and they can act as GM and have control over the roster. Um, and so there's a lot of factors at play. 
So, you know, I think they're reticent to do it, but ultimately if they think Jim Harbaugh is the guy and if they think that this guy is going to be able to win them ball games and help them make inroads in the market and get the most out of Justin Herbert, then maybe that's a concession that they have to make and they can figure out the structure from there. Does David Shaw's lack of head coaching experience in the NFL, does that work against him? Or nowadays do they say, hey, if you can do it at the college level, you can probably do it in the NFL. He's been in the NFL. But, you know, how does that factor? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I guess, like, from an ownership standpoint, it's about what you're looking for. And I think in the Chargers case specifically, like, they feel like a lot of what they need is discipline, is accountability, is culture building, and is a proven track record of being able to build teams and build cultures and win. Um, And I don't necessarily think that it's important about what level you do it at. Obviously, there will be a little bit of an unknown there since he hasn't you know, been a head coach at the NFL level, but he's obviously has a proven track record of being able to build, um, you know, legitimate, successful culture through those types of ideals like discipline, discipline and accountability. And I think that's probably what that interview has been centered around. And frankly, I think that's what a lot of their interviews have been centered around. Like, what does discipline mean to you? What does accountability mean to you? And how do you, you know, execute that as the you know head of an organization as a head coach? We're talking to Daniel Popper. He covers the Chargers for the Athletic Los Angeles Chargers, uh, tweeting just four hours ago that uh, they have interviewed David Shaw, uh, former Stanford coach, for their job. Uh, Jim Harbaugh, um, fan base, does that move the needle for Chargers fans? Does that proof of performance, national championship, success with the Niners, would that be a a deviation in in the minds of Chargers, Chargers fans in a positive way? Yeah, 100%. I think that's going to be part of the calculus if and when they do hire Jim Harbaugh. Like, at this point, they're five years into this move, right? And I think the organization sort of looked at this move to L.A. with a broader view than most people. They were like, okay, after 10 years, we want to have a place in the market, right? And five years in, they have not been able to successfully do that. And a big part of it is they haven't been able to win. And so by hiring Jim Harbaugh, you know, the, the fan base is all in on him. But I think by hiring him, you give yourself a good chance not only because you have a prominent coach in there who's going to attract attention, but also a guy who's a proven winner. And, like, at this point, you know, even if it's short-lived, like, they need to win here in Justin Herbert's prime years, in the next four to five years. And Jim Harbaugh is likely going to be able to do that. He's probably the candidate that is going to give you the clearest path toward doing that. So I think you get two things with Jim Harbaugh. It moves the needle absolutely in the city. It moves the needle with the fan base in terms of excitement. And then I think it gives you a really good chance of putting a winning product on the field, which is really what's missing for the organization. They have everything else. They have the great uniforms. They have, you know, great branding. They have great digital media. They have great social media. They're at the forefront of all of that kind of stuff when it comes to professional sports. The last missing ingredient is winning ballgames, and I think that's going to be, you know, the main focus of the team here. And I think that's probably why Jim Harbaugh is very attractive on top of what he'll do in terms of adding and injecting some juice into uh, attention to the team. Well, obviously, a lot of our listeners uh, are familiar with Justin Herbert, see him as a selling point, want the best for him. From a head coaching perspective, do you have a sense of what kind of coach benefits Herbert the most? Yeah, I think they need to find some sort of stability in terms of system, in terms of scheme, and in terms of offensive approach. Like That, to me, has to be a priority for the organization. And it should have been a priority the last time around when they hired Brandon Staley. And we asked, the beat did, and I did specifically to John Spanos, like, why 
you know, is Brandon Staley a good hire for Justin Herbert? What's the plan offensively? And they talked about vertical alignment, how all of the, you know, special teams, defense, and offensive approaches will all flow through Brandon Staley. And that didn't happen. And what we're looking at now is Justin Herbert is very likely going to have his fourth offensive coordinator in five years in the league. And, like, that is just not how you build sustainable offense. It's not how you develop a young quarterback. And so that's another thing that's attractive about Jim Harbaugh. Obviously, he's not a play caller, but he's a guy that played in the league, played for the Chargers, an offensive guy who will be able to create that kind of stability for Justin Herbert in terms of um, scheme and system. And Justin said it himself after the season when we talked to him on Baggy Day, you know, He's obviously never going to say it outright, but we were speaking more generally about, like, what does stability do for a quarterback? And he talked about the one time he did have it in the NFL with Joe Lombardi and how much further ahead he felt in April when he, the team came back together and they weren't learning a new offense. They were building on what they already had. And I can guarantee you that that's something that Justin wants moving forward, and, and that should be, you know, what the Chargers are looking for in terms of how do we assess and, and conduct this coaching search to benefit Justin Herbert the most. Yeah, I keep I think back to his college. I mean, Daniel, think about it. I mean, he had he had Mark Elfrich, then he had Willie Taggart for a year, then he had Mario Cristobal. He had three head coaches in in three seasons, and you know his play callers. I think he had four different offensive coordinators in that time as well. And he's never had continuity, and he's succeeded to a certain extent in spite of it. And I and I keep thinking the Chargers' job is a good job because of Herbert. Am I reading that right? Wrong? I mean, when you compare it to the other openings. Yeah, I mean, it is the most attractive job right now because of Justin Herbert. Like, that's what, I, that's what I believe, and that's what I think a lot of people in the league believe. He's a dude. Like, he's a real guy. He is a quarterback that can lead you to a Super Bowl. He has that type of talent. But you look at the great quarterbacks around the league, and even through history, like, one thing that they've always had is that kind of continuity. And listen, like, Justin Herbert is such a smart guy and has such high football IQ that he's able to do it. Like, he can relearn a, a new offense every offseason and go out and perform. But are you getting the absolute most out of him? Are you maximizing his talent? And I would love to see a scenario where Justin Herbert is in year three, year four of the same system, and what he can be um, with all these bank experiences, not having to relearn all these new offenses. I think that's a, that's a, a reality that the Chargers would love to live in, and I think if they can make it happen, it'll be very beneficial for Justin Herbert. All right. Uh, decision time will eventually uh, happened there with the Chargers, but uh, Harbaugh already interviewed. Shaw interviewed. Um, you know, obviously the Chargers interviewing Vrabel today. Uh, mm-hmm. Looks like uh, he'll get a look today. But uh, when Leslie Fra- Leslie Frazier, Bills uh, former coordinator, interviewed already. But when is this supposed to happen? Yeah, I mean, up until the Vrabel stuff today, I was getting the sense that was that it was early next week. Um, but now that they're Rooney Rule compliant. You know, it could potentially happen over the weekend, but it's going to be in the near future. Um, I would say, you know, at the earliest sometimes this weekend, but definitely by by early next week, I think they're going to they're going to make their decision and get this thing moving forward. Yeah, sometimes you get surprises. Like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the Raiders did something squirrely, but this one feels like it's going to be somebody everybody kind of nods and goes, "Of course, it's Harbaugh," or "Of course, they went with Shaw or Vrabel." Uh, who else is really in this in your mind besides those three? Yeah, good question. Um, I think you start with guys that, you know, have some experience, right? So, like, a, a name I would throw out there that's interesting to me is Steve Wilkes, 49ers defensive coordinator. He had one season as the Arizona Cardinals head coach and also was the interim coach in Carolina after they fired Matt Rule. And you heard a lot of good things out of Carolina about his ability to lead 
accountability, discipline, those types of things. Ben Johnson is a name I would throw out there. Um, Lions offensive coordinator, obviously everyone's seen what he's done with Jared Goff. Um, he put up 41 points in the Chargers in week 10 of this past season. He can't technically do an in-person interview until uh, Monday after this divisional round. Um, and obviously he's tied up with uh, the playoffs currently. Um, so that's another name I would throw out there. Um, and then Raheem Morris is also an interesting name. I don't know if they'll go back and do the Rams defensive coordinator thing again because they did it with Brandon Staley. I think optically that's a little bit tough. But Raheem Morris, um, another guy with, with head coaching experience, actually got the job when he was in his early 30s, and it's been a while since he's got another opportunity. But, you know, everyone with the Rams speaks very highly of him and his ability to lead. So I think it's sort of like a tiered thing. Like I think Jim Harbaugh, Mike Rabel, you know, that's what you're looking at. Ben Johnson, probably your tier one. If you're in your tier two, you know, you're looking at guys with some experience, you know, Steve Wilkes um, and Raheem Morris, um, Dan Quinn, I'd probably throw in there as well. And then, you know, Ben Johnson obviously is an up and coming uh, coordinator candidate. What did the Chargers do in the first round of the draft? Number five pick overall. What are they going to do there? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I wrote about it actually for today. A lot of it depends on how many quarterbacks go in the top three. Like if Jaden Daniels gets into the top three, the Chargers are probably going to have a shot at one of these two game-breaking receivers between Marvin Harrison Jr. and Malik Neighbors. If only two quarterbacks go in the top three, four, and then you get the two receivers go at, at three and four, um, then you got Brock Bowers as an option. That's a little bit too high for a tight end for my liking. But I also think they could go tackle. Um, Joe Alt at Notre Dame is a name to consider there. So I would say receiver, if it falls right, maybe Bowers, and then, and then maybe a tackle to beef up the offensive line. Obviously, if they hire Jim Harbaugh, I think there's a, a better chance that they go offensive line considering the way that he likes to build his rosters. Yeah, it's interesting because you're, you're talking all offense, and I think, you know, for me, I want to see Herbert be successful, so I like that you're talking all offense. So it does look like uh, they'll go that direction. Daniel Popper, you can find him on Twitter. Read him at The Athletic. Uh, good luck to you. Make sure you're hydrate. I know a coaching search is not easy. Appreciate it, John. Thanks for having me. All right, there he goes. Sounds like uh, the Chargers probably want Jim Harbaugh, maybe Mike Vrabel. But uh, it'd be interesting to see what they do in the draft, too. Brock Bowers, the Georgia tight end, is going to be a star. You know how good tight ends um, can matter in the NFL. Um, I do want success for Herbert. I also am well aware that, you know, there's not a, there's some anti Jim Harbaugh sentiment out there. The guy's a winner. And I think from a selfish standpoint, if you're a Duck fan, let me just let me just create the narrative for Washington and Oregon fans for them to nod and be happy with the Chargers hire. You would be happy with Michigan losing their head coach. Is that not a, a double win for Oregon fans if Jim Harbaugh goes to the Chargers? Because, you know, Herbert gets Harbaugh and Michigan loses Harbaugh. And all of a sudden, you're an Oregon fan going, hey, this trip to the Big Ten just got a little bit easier. Steven, am I right? No, 100% right on that one because here's the thing. Harbaugh is a good coach no matter what you think about him. And there's a lot of a lot of thoughts on him, whether he's you know, a cheater, not in what he's doing. He's a great coach, and he's proven it on every single level he's been on. I mean, think back going back when he coached at San Diego and then to Stanford. Like, he's coached on that level. And then he went to the NFL, got to the Super Bowl. Now he wins a national title. He's a great coach. So if you're Oregon and Washington – you would be rooting for Harbaugh to leave Michigan because Michigan is going to be good again next season. And you already know it's going to be a difficult path in the Big Ten. It's not going to be you know like the Pac-12 where it seems like you guys can get back to the Pac-12 title game. It's going to be tough in the Big Ten with Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State and all those teams. So 
I'm with you, man. If uh, if I'm an Oregon or Washington fan, I'm rooting hard for Harbaugh to leave and go to the go to the Chargers. And then, especially if you're an Oregon fan, you're a Herbert fan. Not only are you uh, getting rid of one of the best coaches in all the nation in college football, now you're getting him with Justin Herbert. You know, maybe one of the most decorated players in Oregon history. So yeah, I mean, root for that hard. I would say. There you go. That's how you're. There's your rooting interest if you're an Oregon fan. Uh, Oregon State fans, I got something for you in the next segment. Uh, I'm a little concerned about the move to the WCC with the basketball program, so kick that around. Plus, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk Pac-12 football and basketball uh, with a reporter in Tempe, the Arizona State viewpoint, um, as Arizona State is trying to get through this season. Did you catch Bobby Hurley last night? He was all fired up in the post game after losing to UCLA. Blew a 15-point lead in the second half. Stars, I wish I could say how I really feel. Wish I could say how I could really feel right now. But I'm not going to do that. I am not going to say how I really feel. So I am just going to start out by saying when you look at the, at the stat sheet, proud of my team's uh, shooting percentages uh, from three, from two, against a very good defensive team that's you know, starting to find itself and uh, had six turnovers as opposed to, to their 11. And uh, that's all I'm going to say, really. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk about how I feel right now. So feel free to ask, ask me anything you want right now. Were you pleased with the rebounding effort, especially the reserve side? I'm pleased with everything that happened on the basketball court besides the free throw line. What was explained to you by No one wanted to explain anything to me. I had to ask to, be, to, to explain what happened. But I'm tired of the explanation, so I'm just not going to talk about it anymore. Bobby Hurley, talking about it without talking about it. We'll talk about that in the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it here. We'll spend some time in the 5 o'clock hour talking uh, about Arizona State and the debacle last night in Tempe as uh, Bobby Hurley's team led by 15 in the second half and lost to UCLA. Um, there were some weird things that were going on. I guess I can dive into it a little bit here, but Chris Cartman's going to join us. He's a reporter who covers Arizona State, and he's going to join us in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll talk about Kenny Dillingham, and we'll talk about Arizona State basketball and Bobby Hurley and all this other stuff. But there's a bigger systemic issue that I want to deal with. It's like a 20,000-foot view issue of the Pac-12 that I think is a problem. And it's going to be a problem for Oregon. It's going to be a problem for Oregon State. It's going to be a problem for men's programs, women's programs. Everybody's going to be dealing with this until now in July. And really now in March is when it's going to be at its worst. I think there's a little bit of autopilot going on at the conference office. I think George Klyovkov, the sitting commissioner, knows that he's a dead man walking. I think it's a matter of time before he is relieved of his duties and his contract is bought out. Um, I've talked to enough people to know that he doesn't have a future with the Pac-12. And so I think by virtue of that, his staff, keep in mind, they have a retention plan in place for the staff that gives everybody job security. And some of the people left January 1. Some will stay with the Pac-12 through basketball season. And then some will stay to the end in July. And then after that, I think the conference office will keep four or five people around to answer the mail, run the website. Oregon State, Washington State will be in charge at that point. But I think there is a little bit of um, short-timers syndrome going on right now with the Pac-12. And I think it manifested itself last night during the Arizona State-UCLA basketball game. And unfortunately, 
or maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it, Bobby Hurley's at the center of it. Bobby Hurley in the postgame, all fired up. You heard me play the clip. He walks into the news conference postgame, and I happen to have a reporter there who was there on behalf of johnconzano.com, and I just had him there because I said, go check out the game. I want you to kind of monitor what you go on. Tell me if there's a story to be told there, and sure enough, um, Andrew Martin, who was courtside at the game last night on press row, starts, uh, you know, letting me know there's a problem here. There's an officiating issue at the game. And, uh, you know, of course, if you tuned in or you watched it, you saw what I saw, you saw what Andrew saw, he was in the building. Um, There were five big-time fouls called, four of them technical fouls, on Arizona State. A player got ejected, and Arizona State ends up blowing the 15-point lead. Now, Tony Padilla who is a really good official, long-term veteran official, multiple Final Fours, was on the game. He was on the crew last night for Arizona State. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that Padilla's there because he's a Pac-12 official, and it's a Pac-12 game. But it surprised Arizona State because Padilla was on their last game. He got two games in a row with Arizona State, and that is very unusual. I called six Pac-12 coaches today, and I said, how often do you see the same official in back-to-back games? And they were like, rarely, never, only in a tournament setting. I went back and I looked at all the other conference games that have been played this season. I could not find a case of a Pac-12 official officiating back-to-back games. Now, that wouldn't matter, except that Tony Padilla has got a problem with Bobby Hurley, or Bobby Hurley's got a problem with Tony Padilla. Whatever way you look at it, they don't get along. Okay? these are There's some beef there. And this is a little bit like Chris Paul, Scott Foster, right? Maybe not as publicized, but apparently Hurley and Padilla have an issue that goes back several years. I'm told part of it stems from something that was said by the official before a game started that Hurley didn't like. They've had beef over this. They thought it was settled until last night's game. In last night's game, there were multiple technical fouls called, four technical fouls called on Arizona State. Now, Andrew Martin, who was at the game, said it was inconsistent. He said uh, Padilla was quick with the whistle, very inconsistent with the tees, appeared to single out Arizona State players. Most of these tees were not warranted. There was one technical foul that was called with three minutes and 50 seconds left in the game where an Arizona State player fouled a UCLA player, happened to be a media timeout, and so, you know, horn blows, UCLA players are coming off the bench, the Arizona State player had to walk back through the UCLA players, and Padilla came out of nowhere, boom, teed the guy up. After the game, Bobby Hurley comes into the news conference, I'm going to play it again. As far as I wish I could say how I really feel. Wish I could say how I could really feel right now, but I'm not going to do that. I am not going to say how I really feel. So I am just going to start out by saying when you look at the, at the stat sheet, proud of my team's uh, shooting percentages uh, from three, from two, against a very good defensive team that's you know, starting to find itself and uh, had six turnovers as opposed to, to their 11. And uh, that's all I'm going to say, really. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk about how I feel right now. So feel free to ask, ask me anything you want right now. We're pleased with the rebounding effort, especially with their side. 
I'm pleased with everything that happened on the basketball court besides the free throw line. No one wanted to explain anything to me. I had to ask to, be, to, to, to explain what happened. But I'm tired of the explanation, so I'm just not going to talk about it anymore. Hurley not talking about it, but talking about it. He went on to say, hey, say hello to the bad guys. I'm not going to talk about it, but I, some responsibility certainly lies with, with our uh, uh, need to in a heated game where I'm sure there's a lot of communication. And we're the bad guys. So say hello to the bad guys. You may never see a bad guy like us again. But that's who we were tonight. We were the bad guys. So I'm sure no one else said anything except us all night. I was at last year's UCLA-Arizona State game. There's a lot of emotion. You have uh, a lot of chatter, a lot of jawing. And I could see why the officials would blow the whistle, and I could see why they would use a technical foul to kind of calm the game down. But four technical fouls for Arizona State and ejection on Arizona State's side Yes, Hurley's right. Some of this lies with the loss of composure and the loss of poise at Arizona State. But the Pac-12 told me today that um, they have no rule that says an official cannot work back-to-back games. I reached out to the Big Ten, the Big 12, the ACC, the Mountain West, and the WCC. They all told me that they review officiating assignments every week, and one of the conferences told me it's not uncommon if they know there's there's an issue between an official and a coach that they'll try to create some distance between the two and uh, try to make it work. Like, you know, not schedule Tony Padilla for a Bobby Hurley game. Now, Hurley makes it hard. Uh, it, let's be real. He's fiery. He's got beef with a lot of different officials, I'm sure. But this one last night appeared to manifest itself in a way that wasn't good. And I don't think Padilla should have been working the game. He certainly shouldn't have been there for back-to-back Arizona State games, and it appears to have reared its head. I feel like the official kind of said, I've had enough of Arizona State. I'm done with them in the second half of that game. Steven, you watched it. Yeah, there were some, uh, you could say, interesting calls in that one, especially towards the end of the second half. Uh, you know, The last technical foul that Arizona State had, UCLA draws a foul, and both players kind of get tangled up, run into like the first row of the crowd, and then they meet up and they just kind of like jaw at one another. Arizona State's the only one that gets a technical. Like it's one of those plays where it's like just just let them have a little bit of emotion, like let it play out just a little bit. Especially after you know there's already been some technical foul calls. Like it's an emotional game. These are college kids. These are eighteen to twenty one year olds. Like they're gonna be emotional. It's a tight game. The crowd is really into it. I don't know. It's. It's hard for me to, though, decide with Bobby Hurley on this one, though, John, because I just have a hard time blaming the refs for all these things. I feel like it's just way too easy to just say, you know what, this guy doesn't like me. This is why we're going to lose the game. And it's the same thing with the Scott Foster, Chris Paul thing. Like, yeah, obviously it has been very notarized that Chris Paul doesn't win much with Scott Foster as the rep. But you know what? Also, Chris Paul needs to play better then. You can't just blame the refs for everything. So I don't know. I try to give the refs the benefit of the doubt in a lot of these situations because I feel like they're doing – the best they can. They're not blatantly trying to go out of their way and say, look, I'm going to start calling technical fouls on Arizona State. But, I, you know, watching the game, there's some bad calls, and they went towards UCLA the entire second half, especially towards the end of the game. So I, I understand Bobby Hurley's uh, frustration in that one because they were the better team in this one. They made, you know, they were the better team throughout the game. They were up by a bunch. You look at the stat sheet, it says Arizona State should have won. They just couldn't pull it out. So 
I don't know. I, I, I understand both sides, but I, I have a hard time uh, siding with Bobby Hurley over the refs when he's just going to be blaming referees for, for losses. It's got to be on you and the players at some point. I think they have to have composure. And it looked like UCLA's players knew that Arizona State uh, was in trouble and they were baiting the players. But I also saw Padilla. He appeared to be, I you know, sometimes you see an official who's hunting for a technical foul. Sticking his head, following the player. I mean, it's very easy to walk away if you're an official. I think this is a case, though, where I don't think Padilla should have been on the game. It it was his second straight Arizona State game. Now, I called men's coaches and women's coaches in the conference, and I called a half a dozen coaches, and I said, "Have have you ever had a coach or a referee in back-to-back games?" And they all said, "Super rare." Like really weird that Padilla would be on back-to-back games for Arizona State, and. Hurley, I think you're right. He grates on people, and you either love him or you don't. And and I think a lot of people root against Bobby Hurley. He's got a lot of passion. I sort of see the madness in it, and maybe some of it is that I covered Bobby Knight, and I understand how misjudged Knight was in his time, and how easy it is to kind of look at a guy who's all fired up and just kind of misjudge him. But um, I kind of think Padilla should not have been on this game, no. and I really think it's sad that we're talking about officiating well i think you're right i think that's the bigger issue is it does seem like the pac-12 has somewhat you know tossed it up tossed it in like you know we're going away as a conference we don't don't care anymore because that's i mean if there's a known fact that these two have some type of beef with one another you can't have tony padilla refing two games in a row of arizona state like you just can't have that happen that's something that you cannot overlook and that just makes it seem as if the Pac-12 is just not paying attention to what is happening in their sports. And I think that's the bigger issue is it kind of defines what the Pac-12 has done the last couple of years trying to figure out their media deal. It's like they just they just don't figure it out and they just make little mistakes that just end up becoming huge and blowing up in their faces. Yeah, and I think you know, as I called the Pac-12, I'm told, hey, there's, uh, there's no uh, rule, hard and fast rule that says we don't put an official in back-to-back games. But as I called other conferences, I did get the impression like, hey, we're really tuned into that. Pac-12, not so much. And then I asked the Pac-12 kind of about the accountability for officials in general. And I'm not just talking about Padilla, just officials in general, because think about it. You know, the conferences grade the officials. And if the official has a bad game, the conference will say, hey, you got a D tonight, or they grade them up with a score. Here's your score. It's a 67 out of 100. That's a bad grade. You keep that up, you're not going to get assignments. But... There's no recourse for the Pac-12. It's over for the Pac-12 as we know it after the Pac-12 tournament. And so I kind of think the officials right now are walking around like, hey, uh, I'm going to be in the Big 12 next year, or I'm going to be in the Big 10 next year, or I'll be in the WCC or Mountain West next year. Um, Who cares if they downgrade me? This is my opportunity to kind of like, if I don't like a guy, this is your opportunity to, to, to get back at him. I think we're in a really weird time, and I would be really careful if I were the Pac-12 conference, I'd be really careful about how I assign guys to different games and, and who's who's on a game. And Padilla should not have been on back-to-back games with Bobby Hurley, especially if we know there's beef. And apparently the beef goes back to, you know, how the coaches come out and they'll shake hands with the officials. Well, apparently, like, I had one coach today that I called on the phone, and they said Padilla is militant. If you're not there to shake his hand, he takes it personally. That's just the kind of person he is. In his regular life, he is a bail bondsman. And so one coach said, I was late getting out to shake his hand, and he thought it was disrespectful of me. This is not Bobby Hurley. This is another coach. Well, the same thing happened with Hurley years ago. He was slow to get out 
Padilla basically said, screw you, you didn't shake my hand, and a beef started. And that's how it started. That's how I'm told the beef started. And then, of course, it continues when a guy feels like it's personal and you're getting one over on me, I'm one over on you, and pretty soon you got Bobby Hurley coming into the news conference like, like you know, like uh, essentially it's like it's Anna and I haven't done what I said I was going to do in the yard. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about what I what I'm not going to say. But he's he's literally venting at the same time. Uh, keep an eye on it as the official. Uh, and by the way, as I called those half dozen Pac-12 basketball coaches today, every one of them belly ached about officiating. So uh, you know, you know how it goes. Uh, tonight, uh, you got Bill Walton and Ted Robinson on the Washington State Stanford broadcast game. Guess what? Fifty years ago tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of Notre Dame snapping UCLA's 88-game win streak. Three years Bill Walton didn't lose a game. Bill Walton, UCLA guy, Ted Robinson, Notre Dame guy. I wonder if that's going to come up on the broadcast tonight. Keep an eye on it. Leave it here. Chris Sims loves the 49ers. Says it's their year. I'm picking the 49ers. Uh, I think the 49ers are in a class of their own in the NFC. I, I do. I think they're a notch above everybody there. I worry, like the Ravens conversation, I worry a little bit about the same things we, we discussed there, right? I, I don't care who you are and how hard you practice during your bye week and all that. You know, you got one team that, yeah, the, the Packers have been playing playoff football for the last five, six weeks. So they're ready to go. And there could be a little bit of a getting used to being back on the field in this kind of environment moment. But I don't think that's going to last long with the 49ers. I don't. I mean, again, this is another team like the Ravens. I'll even emphasize more. I think this, I mean, on a mission ever since that Eagles game last year. We're down to the Elite Eight, so to speak, in the NFL playoffs. Packers-Niners Saturday night. Earlier in the day, it'll be the Texans and Ravens. And then on Sunday, Buccaneers against the Lions at noon. And Kansas City-Buffalo at 3.30 on Sunday as the Bills... Trying to get the Chiefs off their back? Kyle Brandt, NFL Network, says the Bills have to beat the Chiefs in the playoffs for it to matter. Doesn't count if you do it in the regular season. Here's the thing about this division, about this this rivalry. We just saw it at three and three, right? There's a whole big asterisk on it that like, okay, the Bills get them in the regular season. Yeah. They're yeah. three and one. And it's every time they beat the Chiefs in the regular season, it's always like, we'll see at the end of the year. And we'll, that's great. You can have your little victory. You can do it here. You can do it there. We'll see you at the end of the year. And I just feel like this is a massive, massive deal for Allen, for the Bills, because if the Chiefs get this one again, and now it's like, not only do we get you again, we went to your cute little Western New York location and all your snow and all your tables and all your wings, and we beat you again. Um, I mean, this is the one. He's right, and you can win in the regular season all you want, but just like in the Pac-12 season where Washington had to beat Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game, the Buffalo Bills have to beat the Chiefs on Sunday or they will forever be known as the franchise that couldn't get past Patrick Mahomes, couldn't get over the hump. You know, It was their year, but until it wasn't, especially with them being the home team on Sunday. And and as tempted as I am to say that all the action is happening in the AFC, because Houston-Baltimore on Saturday is interesting, and Kansas City-Buffalo on Sunday might be the best game of the four games. The two NFC games, um, look, I want to see that the Niners can put it together and look like the 49ers from, like, you know, week 13, week 15. I want to see that team against the Packers, very efficient, very businesslike against the Packers. 
Um, and then the Lions Buccaneers game has got a little bit. It's a little feels a little squirrely. Like I I picked Detroit to beat the Buccaneers, but the Buccaneers are kind of the uninvited guest here, and and they they could potentially be a little disruptive as they sit. You know I you know one win from the NFC Championship and two wins from the Super Bowl. Tampa Bay sitting two wins from the Super Bowl. Stephen, who do you like in these games? Let's go. Let's go first with Houston and Baltimore. Um, I'm taking Baltimore. I think they win the game, but I I I think it's closer than the nine nine and a half point spread. I'm taking Baltimore to win as well, um, but I will be taking Houston with the points. I will be betting a little Houston on the money line. I think Houston's live to win this game, and I may be wrong. It may be five five minutes in the game, and Houston just doesn't have it because they're a young team. But I think the way C.J. Stroud is playing, that offense is cooking, I think they'll be able to get some plays down the field. That's the big big key for me is can Houston hit some big plays against Baltimore? Because the Baltimore defense, they kind of adapt to every different every single style you play. They can play against the run. They can play against the pass. So we saw that against the 49ers. So I think if Houston can hit a couple big plays, they can stay within this ball game. Lamar Jackson, historically, you know, uh, I believe since 2006, he has the third worst QBR rating in postseason play. Now, that was under a different coordinator, Greg Roman. Now they have a new one in Todd Munkin, the former George offensive coordinator. So maybe it's different, maybe it's not. But I think that has a little bit to play into it, why I like Houston plus the points. I'm kind of wondering about the fact that Baltimore got to sit and rest. Houston had to play, but let's see. Uh, later on Saturday, 49ers at home against the Packers. Before I talk about this, let's talk about who's not here. Dallas Cowboys, Philadelphia Eagles. This was supposed to be the Niners, Cowboys, Eagles, Lions at this point of the playoffs. And instead, it's the Niners, Packers, Lions, and Buccaneers. The, the Eagles and Cowboys both out, and they were seen as teams that were contenders. Now, Steve Young joined Dan Patrick. He talked about it. Patrick asked him, who had the more disappointing season, the Eagles or the Cowboys? Who had a more disappointing season, the Cowboys or the Eagles? <laughs> Uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's painful to think of both, uh, to watch the 10 and one Eagles just go completely disappear. And it was weird. Even last night I watched that before the game, I'm like, the Eagles will, they'll respond. And I've said this week after week and it's like, they're going to respond. They'll, they have to respond and they come up last night and just, there's nothing to respond with. And you want to kiss what's wrong. And, uh, and so that's, that's, uh, unnerving if I were an Eagles fan, but the thing that, but they're not, they're not the winner. The Cowboys are the winner or the loser, I guess, is that they continue to underperform at the key moments to their talent and they've done it for 20 years. And you, you, you know, it never ends. They never live up to or extend or expand on the talent they have. They always have a talented team, but they never live to it. And last week was just had to be the most painful thing that Jerry Jones has seen in 20 years. I think the Eagles fall from from greatness, if you want to call it that, is the bigger surprise. And Jason Kelsey was asked after the Eagles were eliminated, you know, when that collapse, you know, what 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 was the what was the change? What was the drop off point? And he pointed to the San Francisco game and the way that the 49ers beat them. He called it a big turning point. And then that people started to ask follow up questions and he walked it back. And but I think it's true. Like people we like to say things like, Hey, did the 49ers break the Cow or the Eagles? Forty two to nineteen in Philadelphia on December third. 
was a sh- shattered the Eagles because it told the Eagles, you're not only you're not winning this year, you're not close. And I think the Eagles, the Niners lined up, rushed four, and beat the pants off the Eagles and beat them very easily. And I think that game, as much as the Niners had it circled on their calendar all season long, I think that game psychologically broke the Eagles, and I think that's why they're not in these playoffs. And I think it's it's disappointing because I think that would have been, I think it's a far better matchup if you had had the Cowboys and the Eagles in these playoffs instead of Green Bay, instead of Tampa Bay. Well, I think if you look at the Eagles, they were 10-1 and one at, that, at that spot, and we thought, man, maybe this is a dynasty starting. Like, Jalen Hurts is young. Sirianni's young. Like, A.J. Brown, this offense is unbelievable. Maybe this is the start of something really special. And now all of a sudden, they lose all these games. They lose in the 49ers. They get absolutely crushed. They get crushed in the playoffs by the Buccaneers, and we're talking, is Jalen Hurts the guy? Is Sirianni going to be the coach going forward? Jason Kelsey may or may not retire. Like, it went from dynasty to potential breakup of the entire you know, it's over. Of the, it's, uh, over. it's over after half a season where the Cowboys, we expect them to lose these games. They've lost these games for 25 years. I don't <laughs> expect them to win any of these big games. Yeah, in the Eagles, it's over. Because when Kelsey goes, I mean, he's at the center of that offense, literally, figuratively and literally, at the center of that offense. And now, you know, the Packers are going to San Francisco. They're a nine-and-a-half-point dog in that game. I think the Niners are going to cover that. How about you? I th- I'm leaning that way. I was starting to think maybe Packers. Me and Jude were talking about this, and he's kind of he's on the Packers plus the points. He's talking me into it. I don't know quite yet what I feel, but I'm leaning 49ers at this moment. Don't put it down in pen. I, I think San Francisco's offense is too good. I think you're right. I think Chris Sims is right. They are on a mission to prove that they're the best team in the MC, prove that they're the best team in the NFL, and finally get that Super Bowl for Kyle Shanahan. So I think the 49ers will win this game. I don't think they really have a problem in the NFC getting to the Super Bowl. Sunday night's game, I think it's the best game, or it's Sunday late afternoon, 335 on the West Coast. Chiefs at Buffalo. And it's a moment of truth for Buffalo. I mean, they are a two-and-a-half-point favorite. They're at home. If they don't win this one, they're never beating the Chiefs. They're at kind of that inflection point as well. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I think if they lose this game, there's a lot of questions on the core, basically, of what this team is. You're going to keep Josh Allen, but everyone else around him, you got to rebuild it because you just can't get it done in the postseason. And that's it, it reminds me a lot, John, of the Lakers and the Kings back in the early or late 90s, early 2000s, when the Kings kept playing Kobe and Shaq, could never beat them in the playoffs. And then Kobe and Shaq go on to win all these NBA finals. That's what it feels like right now with Josh Allen and the Bills. They keep running into the Chiefs. Can't get it done. I mean, it was, what, 13 seconds? All they had to do was stop them. They gave up a field goal the entire length of the field. I mean, if they don't get it this time at home with the Chiefs lacking a lot of offensive power, firepower, I don't know when you will ever get them. Buffalo's got some key injuries on the defensive side. Keep an eye on that stuff. But I'm picking Buffalo reluctantly. It was the game I had the hardest time with. But I'll take Buffalo. I'll take Detroit over Tampa. I'll take the Niners. I like the Ravens. I guess I like the home team. Do you like uh, Detroit laying the nine or the six and a half points right now against Tampa? Yeah, Bay? yeah, I do. I think Detroit's going to win that game, and I think they're going to. I think they're going to. I clean ca- it up. I kind of agree with you because I think Tampa Bay ran into the fact that they played Philadelphia, and maybe Philadelphia is just terrible, and that's why they won by so much over Philadelphia last week. The Philadelphia game, it, the Eagles felt to me it was like one, two, three, Cancun. I mean, it was it, from the get go, yeah. And I think it's kind of it set in. I don't think they want to see the Niners again. And I think the Eagles were like, we don't we just don't want to do that. We didn't we couldn't win in Philadelphia. We're not gonna win. I think they wanted to go home, watch it on television, and instead you have Green Bay, Tampa Bay, and Detroit, three teams that like, you know, are coming from off the pace who wanna be part of the playoffs. 
Think about this. The San Francisco 49ers have not taken a snap yet in the NFL playoffs. And the Eagles, the Cowboys, and the Rams are all out. Think about that. I can just say as a 49er fan, it was like, those are the kinds of teams I would have expected to see in the divisional playoffs. Will the divisional playoffs deliver as they did two years ago? Remember two years ago, Stephen, all four games came down to game winners? Two years ago. Game-winning field goal, game-winning field goal on Saturday, game-winning field goal, game-winning field goal on Sunday. I kind of think think it's not going to live up to those type of expectations. I feel like there's a lot of... A lot of blowout potential, right? Like, I think the 49ers could really get the Packers. I think, even though I like the Texans, I think the Ravens could get the Texans. And I think the Lions are actually going to get the Bucks pretty good. So I think I think there's a lot of potential, a lot of blowout potential in this one. The one saving grace it has is that Bills-Chiefs game. Like, that's a rivalry that we've seen for years. That's the game we all want to see between those two teams. Like, I think that could save the weekend. But I actually think, John, there's a potential that it could be a little blowout city, baby. So you can parlay those first three games, take the home teams, lay the points. I mean, not the. I've made worse bets. I tell you that. Stephen Vaughn, five-star pick of the, of the NFL weekend. Anna's in the studio. Five at five is going to start with the NFL. She's ready to do it. Uh, Anna, you good? Yeah. How are the roads out there? Uh, passable. Passable roads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good news. Yep. All right, let's do it. The five at five. The five. Um, speaking of the Bills and the Number Chiefs, one. Rookie there move. you Rookie go. Move. Rookie move. NFL playoffs, go. Um, the Bills are asking for help again, shoveling out the field. It, um, it worked last week. Yeah, I guess it did. But now they're at five to six feet of snow at uh, the stadium, and they're preparing for their wild card game versus... The Chiefs. the Chiefs. Um, now, this is interesting. They, again, need fans to be at least 18 years old. They need to bring their own shovels, which if you live in Buffalo, you should have your own shovel. Uh, the work starts on Friday at 2 in the afternoon. That is a two-whole-day window before the game. Shovelers will get $20 an hour, access to a warm break area, and uh, they may have to contend with five to is, six feet. Is there pride in this? Is there a little bit of, hey, I helped my team in this for the Buffalo fans? Like, I got to think those fans are going to feel more invested in the game. And by the way, how's Taylor Swift going to do with all that snow? She's going to show up in Buffalo's crappy hotels. You know, <laughs> she going to be out there snow. shoveling? <laughs> <laughs> She's going to be out there. She's not a um, Bills fan. This Making game, 20 bucks an hour. It's huge for Buffalo yeah, because she really needs twenty dollars an hour. It's a home game. Why can't she just come in and be like, "I'll snow blow the whole thing. I got it. It's on me," you know? Well, I don't know if you saw, but fans at Monday's game actually sat in piles of snow in the stands. Yeah. Because the shovelers were instructed to first focus on the walkways. Mm. So they were piling it up. So, like, we're not talking about like the field. We're talking about the bleachers. Well, you know. I just think this should be on the team. You know, you go to the movie theater, they don't say, everybody pick up all the garbage in the theater. You know, there's a staff that's that's hired to be there. Are the bills just cheap? That's uh, a whole nother, uh, whole nother segment. But look, 
Um, I digress. This is a huge game, not just for Buffalo, who is at home and favored against the Chiefs, who are undermanned relative to what they have been offensively in years past. But it's a huge game for Josh Allen. It's a chance for him head-to-head with Patrick Mahomes to get a win. Can he do it? He needs it. This is big for his legacy. It's big for the Bills. We we talked about it last hour. If the Bills don't win this game, it kind of signals we need to break up the band. We need to try again and start over. Um, I, I, I'm kind of leaning Bills in that game, and I think it's the best of the four games of the weekend. Number two. This story caught my eye. Uh, Miami tight end Cam McCormick. Uh, he turns 26 in April. Yeah, former Duck. <laughs> yes. He redshirted with the Ducks. Well, he announced today that he will return to the Hurricanes for what will be his ninth season of college football. <laughs> ninth! I love it. He started playing football in 2016. He was the same high school recruit recruiting class as Nick Bosa. <laughs> <laughs> same as Justin Herbert, too. <laughs> and and Jalen Hurts, just for some perspective. He's having fun. He's a great story. I mean, coming back, natural-born leader, character guy. You know, he had terrible season-ending injury in 2018, um, redshirted in 2016, multiple surgeries, missed all of 2019. And good, good on Mario Cristobal for recognizing there, that, that McCormick is a culture keeper. Resilient kid. Um, you know, it's his last ride, nine years in college. They're going to make a movie about this guy. Well, he's not alone. So Oklahoma State quarterback Alan Bowman was granted a seventh season of eligibility by the NCAA. And Jack Tuttle with Michigan is seeking the same eligibility from the NCAA. So these guys are just playing for a long time. It used to be a bad thing. Yeah, I've been in college six years. People would be like, ooh, what happened? What went wrong? Now we're like, yeah, keep it going. Anything you can do. Anything you can do to stay in college. Good for you. You have the rest of your life. It's the real life Van Wilder. (laughs) (laughs) Number three. Okay. um, Let's go with, this is kind of a crazy story. Former ESPN sportscaster Cordell Patrick is ejected from his own RV on a busy California freeway. He and his wife were returning for a camping trip. They were on their way home to Valencia, California on SR-14. So he had unbuckled his seatbelt. It was just unbuckled for five seconds. He noticed that his wife, who was at the wheel, had dozed off. Oh, no. And they were heading toward a median. He tried to grab the steering wheel, but before he could do that, they already had impact. The impact threw him out of the driver's side window and over the center median wall. Dash cam from another vehicle showed him ending up on that other side of the freeway in a car narrowly missing him as he pulled himself up on the highway divider. Broke multiple bones, including a dislocated shoulder and road rash over 60% of his body. Man, um, his wife fell asleep at the wheel. I'm, he's lucky. Uh, yeah, you think? Lucky. Uh, good thing he had to use the restroom. Apparently, he had to, got up to use the restroom during that drive. And that's when he saw it, right? Yeah. So, he um, he said he was conscious the whole time. 
which is probably the most horrifying part of that, <laughs> as you're hurtling over the uh, over the median towards ongoing uh, oncoming traffic, you're well aware of what's going on. I'm glad he's okay, uh, and I'm glad that uh, he's living to tell about it. Number four. Here's an interesting one from USA Today. They did some math, and they're saying that major college athletics departments will end up spending a combined total of at least $200 million in football coaching and staff changes made during and after the 2023 season. So that relates to the firing and hiring of head coaches, assistant coaches, strength coaches, and all the buyouts that are involved. Two hundred million dollars just being thrown around. Well, it's it, that you know when you when a coach gets bought out, and Kalen DeBoer, Alabama's got to buy him out, and there's a change of staff. There's a cost that comes with that. There's a cost that comes with Washington bringing Jed Fish in, and a cost that comes with Arizona bringing Brent Brennan in. And um, you know these colleges can plead poverty all they want. But when you see them throwing money around and you see the coaching salaries that continue to escalate and you see what Steve Sarkeesian gets uh, and he's not even getting a new job, you see what Mike Norvell gets at Florida State. I have a hard time when the athletic departments are going, we're so poor, we can't afford, except they're giving away $53, 65000000 million to these coaches. So as long as they continue to do that, I, have, I don't feel sorry for any of them. And that is staggering. That amount of money. And then they're going to turn around to fans and be like, you know, we need to raise your ticket prices. Guess what? They're not paying for it, folks. You are. You know, Oregon makes a change. Oregon State makes a change. They're not paying for it. That ends up with the season ticket holders. It ends up with the parking fees. It ends up with gift giving. You know, we all know who's paying the bill. It's you. All right, in case you're wondering. Number five. This is such a cute story. So Iowa's Caitlin Clark uh, noticed a young fan who was wearing her jersey and was imitating the Hawkeyes' pregame stretching routine. So she notices this. Iowa goes and wins 96-50 to over Wisconsin on Tuesday. But then Clark notices this gal and gives her her game-worn shoes, her Sabrina Ionescu Sabrina ones. That's pretty nice. A really nice day girl. for the fan. We've got the, uh, the the Western Regional right here in Portland. It'll be at Moda Center coming up in March. So it'll be interesting if Caitlin Clark ends up in the West again, as she did last year. She went to Seattle as part of the West. They won that region. Uh, pretty good shot that she goes West with Iowa. So I think, uh, you know, fans, basketball fans in our state, I think you could still grab tickets if you want to go see uh, – uh, Caitlin Clark play, you have to guess which session she's in or just buy them both. But there's a morning and an afternoon session. Uh, tickets are on sale for those women NCAA tournament games. Uh, good on her. That's I think that's part of being a good star athlete. I remember I was one of those kids, 8, 9, 10 years old, who hung over the railing at my local college football stadium, and I had a football player who took his arm pad off. It was a defensive tackle. He handed it to me. I wore that damn thing. I never washed it. it. Smelled like his sweat. I don't know how disgusting that was uh, then, but I know now. And uh, Rod Trailer, who uh, played defensive tackle at San Jose State, handed me his arm pad. I'll never forget it. You know, and to the point where, like, I went and looked Rod Trailer up. 
like about a year ago. Yeah. It was a sad ending to his life. He died. He got shot by his own brother. Oh, God. All this stuff. I was like thinking I would reach out to Rod Trailer and be like, hey, man, I was I got an arm pad from you all those years ago and you made you made my year. You made my season. And it turns out Rod did not make it. And so uh, kind of a sad ending there. But, you know, I always respect athletes who will take the time and do something nice to a young fan in particular who has shown up. And there's something about women's college basketball. You know, I I watched this when Sabrina was in college at Oregon. Mm-hmm. Oregon State does it too. Scott Ruick's team does the same thing. The women players, the athletes in women's college basketball, by and large, seem to be more in tune with their young fans than any other demographic. They hang around. They come back out out of the locker room. They thank the fans for coming. They wave at the fans as they're leaving the court. They don't act like they're too cool for school like NBA players and the men's college basketball players and the football players. The women's college basketball players, I think they're great. They're still charmingly grateful that the fans show up to see them play. I think there's a real connection there that the general public doesn't see unless you're at the games. Yeah, and Caitlin in particular is known for that. I mean, she sticks around for a long time afterwards signing autographs, and this isn't the first time that she's taken her shoes off to make someone's day. Just last month, um, she gifted her uh, reverse Grinch Nike Kobe sixes to a young girl who was asking for an autograph so you know she's making people's days i saw sabrina do it though you remember the Mm -hmm. day remember the day kobe died and and nine other people died in that helicopter crash sabrina after that game it was oregon oregon state came back out from the locker room and took pictures with young girls that's crazy her eyes were swollen her face was puffy you could tell she'd been crying in the locker room and she still came back out and posed for photos and she wasn't smiling like she was kind of just, you know, emotionless as she was taking the pictures and probably numb. But, she, I mean, it's just, I think there's just an element of connection with the women's college basketball players and their fans. And I think that's where, I think that's where the action is. And I, had a fr- I have a friend, Antonio, who's a big card collector, okay? He collects hockey, basketball, football. He texted me yesterday, and he texted me a, 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 a graded Caitlin Clark card, and he said, Women's college basketball is where it's at. And I'm like, this is like a 45-year-old dude who's who's texting me that women's college basketball is where it's at, you know? And I just like I just kind of liked it, you know. I didn't want I didn't know what to say, you know, but he but it's true. The fans connect with the players in a in a way that I think other sports ignore. I think they take I think football takes the fans for granted to a certain extent. I do. I don't think the average football player in a college team looks up at fans and says, thank you for coming. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it happens in men's college basketball. I don't think it happens in the NBA or the NFL or hockey or Major League Baseball. But women's college basketball, I genuinely think when you see a great player who's playing for, like, you know, Cameron Brink playing at Stanford, I think she looks up at the crowd as she's leaving and says, hey, thank you. Thanks for being here. And I, I know we know uh, a young girl who had a birthday, and Cameron Brink's her favorite player. And I reached out to Cameron Brink's mom, and I said, hey, this girl, like, had a, it wasn't her birthday cake, like a Cameron Brink jersey. Jersey? Yeah, she loves Cameron Brink so yeah. much that she requested a birthday cake shaped uh, in, in Cameron Brink's yeah. jersey. I, I texted that to Cameron Brink's mom. Mm-hmm. Her mom sent back a video from Cameron wishing a happy birthday to the girl. Like, I mean... 
it, and the kid just about fell over. It, she actually did, like, literally yeah, fall like over. A fa- <laughs> like, I just think that, you know, and I know it sounds Pollyanna, but I just think, like, if NBA players, Major League Baseball players, NFL players, college football players, men's college basketball players, just took a moment to make eye contact, thank a fan, not just the, hey, thanks for being here as they're running off the court, I think some of them do. I Maybe think some of them. There's NBA players that stick around. The, to I think there's a lot of fakey bobs. There out are there. some though. Like you know, I was in Tahoe for the celebrity golf tournament, and a lot of the athletes were super nice to my you know my oldest Lincoln. Like uh, I'm, I'm watching the Bulls right now play Zach Levine. Like we got stopped, and we were right next to his golf cart, and my son like couldn't even talk. He was just so excited, and he's like, "Well, do you want a picture or an autograph?" And Levine's was like, "Hey, just come sit in my golf cart." Take a picture and then I'll sign an autograph. So like, that's a, nice. So like, yeah. So like, a guy like Zach Levine just said, "Hey, you know what, kid? Come sit in the golf cart with me. I'm gonna put my arm around you. Take this picture and an autograph." So I think I think there are some out there, John. But you are right. For the most part, it seems like uh, a lot of these athletes do take, take it for granted. granted. Yeah. Wait, but that's, you, you were in Tahoe for the golf tournament, the celebrity golf tournament. I was. Yeah, I was one of the celebrities. You didn't know that? Oh. No, I was there. Though, yes. <laughs> Did you know that I was I was supposed to caddy for Charles Barkley years ago in that event? I had a golf magazine that said, do you want to do it as a freelance thing? And I said, sure. And then I went, and then Barkley had his own caddy, so I just got to walk with Charles Barkley in Ahmad Rashad and whoever they were playing with in this tournament and write about all the nonsense that they said to each other where they were trying to putt and how they walked across. You know, they were terrible golfers. But it ended up being a pretty fun event. That is a fun event, that Pro-Am in, in Tahoe. Oh, Who else did you see, Stephen? Oh, super. Sorry, I'm, I'm totally got to know now. No, yeah, super fun. Um, like, Aaron Rodgers was there, and it was right after he got traded to the Jets. So that was yeah. uh, wow. that was very adventurous. Did you hang out with him? Uh, well, we do have – we do. my son, he was obsessed with autographs. So he did get Aaron Rodgers' autograph, actually. he uh, oh. Rodgers stepped off to go to the bathroom. And when he came out of the restroom, like, I mean, a bunch of 45-year-old dudes just swarm him. And, like, his his cat is like, hey, just clear out, everyone. Let him let him be. He's just going to the bathroom. And then all the persons left was my little son Lincoln out there just standing there with his little notebook and a pen. Aww. Was the only person there. And so Rogers came over and signed it for him. Like, it was super sweet. No way. Yeah. Um, there was Josh Allen was there. Patrick Mahomes was there. Travis Kelsey was there. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, Vinny Del Negro, former NBA coach, he was there. Uh, Kevin from The Office. Lincoln has a picture with Kevin from The Office, which Amazing. is pretty awesome. That's my favorite celebrity of all. <laughs> and Forget fun- all those other people you just said. Now, the funny part about this story is, uh, so, you know, I really, like, I knew that was the picture I wanted to get, was Lincoln with Kevin from The Office. Yeah. That, that, that's right. what everybody yeah. wants. Naturally. You know, he's, a, he's a bigger guy, right? Like, uh-huh. he's, he's a bigger guy. Yeah. And uh, so, I, I, you know, Lincoln doesn't even know who he is. But afterwards, <laughs> Lincoln's like, you know what, Dad? He, he kind of smelled bad. Because he was sweating, oh, golfing. He was sweating oh, from course, golfing. Yeah, I kind of imagine he does. Yeah, Larry the Cable <laughs> the Guy. Larry the Cable Guy was there. He was super nice. He did the Mater voice, so Lincoln went nuts for that. Um, wow. Yeah, it was a really good time. I love that. There you go. That's like one-stop shopping as far as celebrities go. But I think the celebrities need to. I think the athletes need to take a page from the women's college basketball players. I think they would they would bond with fans in the way that Steven's talking about mm-hmm. Zach Levine bonding with his kid his kid that's a fan for life you got to do that uh Chris Carpman coming up uh 24/7 sports he covers Arizona State we're going to talk a little bit of Pac-12 football and basketball we'll tie the bow on the NFL action in the final segment of today's show stick around NFL playoffs 
Saturday and Sunday. Um, better is the Chiefs. Are we buying too much into the Chiefs Bills game being the being the best game, Stephen? Like, do you feel like maybe we're buying too much of that? And could the could the Packers Niners game or the Ravens? You've mentioned you think the Ravens Texans game might be uh, might be a little bit better game. So is it possible that the Saturday action will be better than the Sunday action? I think it's possible i mean anything's possible right but i i don't i think i i might it would be a high uh high bet for me to put it on the chiefs and the bills i just think that those two teams man they know each other so well that it's going to be close where i do think that there is a lot of potential for blowouts um the only other game i think that might be better is the packers 49ers because the way the packers have played jordan love has been one of the best quarterbacks in the nfl the last half of the season um and, and what they did to dallas and offensively we, you know this, John. The 49ers defense isn't what it has been, so maybe the Packers come out and they score a lot of points. So I think that would be the one other sneaky game um, that could be best of the weekend. Well, our next guest, fresh off covering the debacle last night at Arizona State. If you didn't catch it earlier, Bobby Hurley was uh, upset last night after the UCLA-Arizona State game in, uh, in Tempe, and he, uh, he let reporters know about it. Um, our next guest was on the scene, saw it, and was in the news conference. And for people who didn't hear um, Bobby Hurley last night, you know, again, his team blew a 15-point lead in the second half. Four technical fouls that were uh, issued to Arizona State. Of course, there was a loss of poise there, a loss of composure. That raises some questions. But Bobby Hurley, I think, justified in coming into the postgame news conference a little bit fired up. Stars, I wish I could say how I really feel. Wish I could say how I could really feel right now. But I'm not going to do that. I am not going to say how I really feel. So I am just going to start out by saying when you look at the, at the stat sheet, proud of my team's uh, shooting percentages uh, from three, from two, against a very good defensive team that's you know, starting to find itself. And uh, had six turnovers as opposed to, to their 11. And uh, that's all I'm going to say, really. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk about how I feel right now. So feel free to ask, ask me anything you want right now. We're pleased with the, with the rebounding effort, especially with their side. I'm pleased with everything that happened on the basketball court besides the free throw line. What was explained to you by No one wanted to explain anything to me. I had to ask to, be, to, to, to explain what happened. But I'm tired of the explanation, so I'm just not going to talk about it anymore. Chris Cartman was on the scene last night, 24-7 sports, Arizona State writer. Um, big scene there with uh, Hurley. What was that news conference like? What was the what was the feel of that postgame? Yeah, it was unlike anything really that I had seen covering Bobby Hurley going on nine years now. Um, he tends to be quite emotional, but this was at a different level. Um, I, I think it was obvious that he was apoplectic, uh, just uh, could not believe uh, what, what he had seen. And it really kind of was surreal being there. I asked the last question of that clip you just played, and then I also followed up uh, later asking whether or not this, he felt like this was a cumulative thing because Tony Padilla, the, the uh, referee who called, I believe, three of the technicals uh, on ASU players, has a little bit of history uh, with ASU and officiating games. He officiated their last game uh, at Washington, and there were also some questionable things there. And really in the past, and I was 
from the outset of the game, sort of watching what was going to happen with Padilla and this interaction that he had with ASU based upon the history. I tweeted about it within the first minute or so of the game because he missed what I thought was an obvious and one call that Jose Perez sh- should have received. And, you know, ultimately I think it, there's no doubt that he influenced the game more than anybody else, uh, even more than people on the courts because, uh, when, when you award that many technicals and free throws based upon literally words and, and nothing more than words that were exchanged uh, between players or, or, or to the officials, um, that, that's the only sort of takeaway you could have from the one possession game at the end. Yeah, and I, as I watched it, you know, I knew the Padilla-Hurley beef. I, w- I did not know that it was Padilla's second game, and I reached out to the conference. I talked to six other coaches in the conference. They said that is really rare to have an official work two games, especially bad for Hurley because of the history with Padilla and and you know they just don't get along, and and I as I was watching the game, I got the impression that UCLA's players were baiting Arizona State a little bit. Did you get that feel from Press Row? Yeah, I think there was an element to that for sure. Um, it, it, and you know how it is in football, you, you get the retaliator quite quite a lot more than you get the instigator. Uh, and there was just some instances that you saw where UCLA players, as they were going up, flung their hands um, or they, you know, gave a little bit of an extra something here or there. That it, to me, it seemed like that was intended to draw uh, a list of response. And it doesn't mean that ASU players should have lost their composure, and they certainly did. Um, after being there, I watched uh, our footage and I watched the TV copy to, to take a look at all the instances and how it sort of felt uh, in aggregate. And uh, there was just, it wasn't a game with a lot of fouls or a bad disposition to it. In fact, prior to Sean Phillips being thrown out of the game, there had been no foul calls for like three minutes of action on the court. And there was nothing in the arena that made you feel like the referees are on the verge of losing this game or there's some big thing that's, that's underscoring this. From a from an instability standpoint, and so I, it just didn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, uh, it, to me, it, it was an ill-tempered official who uh, wants to be an authoritative person, perhaps has some conscious or subconscious sentiment about Bobby Hurley and ASU, and that spilled over into ultimately pretty much costing ASU the game. Of course, as you said, I agree. You cannot just uh, say things to players, get up in their face, or anything along those lines. When uh, or even talk back to the official, when you kind of already know that this is the way that they're going to be. So ASU is not blameless whatsoever. The players, absolutely, and we could have a conversation about that as well. But the officiating played a significant part in this. I, I just don't, I can't see any other way. Yeah, and I, you know, I did a little bit of research into Tony Padilla, and you know, his other job in the in his real life, he's a bail bondsman. And, you know, I thought that's a really interesting thing that he's an official and a bail bondsman and, you know, sort of a theme to his life. And he has a good reputation in the industry. He's worked multiple Final Fours. But there were some people, as I called around the league, who said he's not a guy you mess with. He doesn't take lip from players. And clearly the other coaches in the conference that I talked with said bad combination, Bobby Hurley and Padilla, because – um, that's just going to be fire and uh, oil and fire and gasoline. There, Hurley, uh, to his credit, did say that the players owned part of this. I'm not going to talk about, it, but I did, some responsibility certainly lies with 
with our uh, 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 need to in a heated game where I'm sure there's a lot of communication and we're the bad guys so say hello to the bad guys you may never see a bad guy like us again but that's who we were tonight we were the bad guys so I'm sure no one else said anything except us all night I find I like Bobby Hurley I like that he's no nonsense I like that he's tough I like that he speaks his mind uh, but you're in that news conference you know you know you're you're five feet away from him when he's given that answer and there's a vein bulging out of his neck when he's doing it yeah um look i didn't in the moment find it that funny because i think i was so engrossed in just his energy um being so so negative and hostile despite what he was actually verbalizing but then later re-watching that that clip i laughed like five times i mean i it was funny I don't I don't know if he was intending to do this or not, but basically it's it's very similar to lines that Tony Montana said in Scarface, which yeah. I tweeted about. <laughs> yes. You, you have you have you have the dinner scene and he gets drunk and he's everybody's looking at him because he's the outcast and he goes through the whole, you know, I I I'm the bad guy thing and then he and then he uh says say goodnight to the bad guy at the end. And and so I just I, to me, it was very reminiscent of that, which I found sort of humorous. Um, but I, I also that happened, and uh, yeah, I don't. I just, it's crazy. Yeah, and I think you know, to me, the twenty thousand foot view is I you know, as I poked around, Chris, with the Pac twelve conference and other conferences, Big Ten, Big Twelve, ACC, Mountain West, WCC all carefully review the officiating assignments. I had one of the conferences, uh, the commissioner of one of those conferences, told me it's not uncommon when they know there's a beef between an official and a coach to put some distance between them. And I just think the fact that Padilla did two games in a row tells me that the Pac-12 officiating thing is on autopilot. Like, I don't know if anybody cares. I don't know if anybody noticed. And that bothers me. I think that's a valid point. Absolutely. Um Oh, you could even, uh, you know, consider some nefarious intentional uh, aspect to it if you if you decided to look at it that way. But ASU fans uh, in the arena uh, and on social media, they're they're asking questions about like how it happens that just the, the, the official that seems to have the most animosity toward toward ASU, or at least what turns out to be the most negative impact on ASU as an official, how he's working back-to-back ASU games in, in the conference, right? Like that's, I mean, that that's almost doesn't, doesn't ever happen with any officials, much less ones that you are closely following because of some animosity that appears to, to exist. Chris Carpman is with us, covers Arizona State 24-7 sports. Uh, Chris, you do a hell of a job. Uh, also, you know, as part of SunDevilSource.com, dot com, you, you're 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 talking about some football. Kenny Dillingham's first year. You you have a feel for how it went and how much enthusiasm that program is has right now and momentum. Well, fans really like him. He was the the person that they wanted due to his background. I think people are very well versed in that. Grew up locally and graduated from ASU and all that. But. Um, the year was disappointing, and, and a huge part of that was, was injuries. Um, more offensive injuries than any team at ASU that I've covered going back almost 20 years now. Um, they, they, they had 
seven or eight offensive linemen who were among their top ten offensive linemen miss multiple games, and including some of their best players at, at the position. Um, they were traveling seven scholarship linemen who weren't redshirts to one of their road games. You know, and they had they were they were playing their fourth string quarterback by the third game of the season, and did not have. Jaden Rashad, their talented freshman quarterback, for all but three games of the season. Drew Pine was injured for most of the season. Trenton Bourget was injured for part of the season. That just makes it really difficult when you're trying to get up to speed in your first year. Their defense had some very good moments, great games, like at Washington, everybody knows, and then had some really bad performances, including the last two of the season. I think that they were quite thin in spots, and they got sort of worn down, and then they had some injuries also on the defensive side and, and they, they kind of fell apart at the end of the season. But um, I think the players like uh, playing for him. The culture seems to be in, in a good place and, and trending better. In, uh, this this offseason they were in, in the top 20 in the transfer portal and I think they filled some spots that they needed pretty effectively. Um, but really it's going to come down to quarterback, whether or not Sam Levitt, the Michigan State transfer from Oregon, you guys know him well, or uh, whether Jane Rashada is able to elevate uh, a good enough level to to move this program into the bowl consideration this this year. We're talking to Chris Karpman. He is in Tempe, and you can read his work at sundevilsource.com. Chris, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, I think it was a, it was a disappointing thing that happened last night. You know, I think that ASU team's pretty good. I think that the conference is kind of wide open hoping that Arizona State can get it back together, get it back uh, on the rails. But uh, keep an eye on Bobby Hurley for us, and we'll talk to you down the road. Sounds good. Appreciate it. All right. There's Chris Cartman. You can find him on Twitter, at Chris Cartman. Uh, some NFL parting thoughts. It's going to dominate tomorrow's show, but we're going to start that domination in the next segment. Stay tuned. Grab a podcast to this radio show wherever you get a podcast. Make sure you subscribe if you're listening now on the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Make a commitment to us. Um, look, I I know that I always say it's a quarterback-centric game because it is in the NFL. But I'm thinking about the quarterbacks specifically in these NFL uh, divisional playoff games on Saturday and Sunday. Houston and Baltimore. Green Bay and San Francisco on Saturday. Tampa Bay and Detroit. And Kansas City and Buffalo on Sunday. And I'm thinking about the quarterbacks specifically for these teams. And I'm going to ask you this question, Stephen, because I've been thinking about it. There are some teams that are more quarterback-reliant than others. And I think Kansas City is a great example of that on Sunday. Patrick Mahomes, you know, that's where it starts, and that's where it finishes for the Chiefs on offense. You know, maybe Jordan Love for Green Bay uh, on Saturday. But which of these quarterbacks, of the eight quarterbacks starting these playoff games— which of these quarterbacks is most needed to come up big by their team? Meaning, I kind of think San Francisco and Brock Purdy, like I think San Francisco could win that game even if Purdy doesn't have his A game. But who has to have an A game on Saturday? And who has to have an A game on Sunday for their teams to win? For me, the, my very first thought is Josh Allen. And it's not even necessarily that he needs an A game. He just can't have... His F game, where he turns it over. Bills, 29-5 and five when he doesn't turn the ball over. And Josh Allen, you know, the thing is, is 
he doesn't turn the ball over throughout the season in a lot of games. It's a lot of games where it's two, three, four turnovers in a game. I think as long as the Bills and Josh Allen can hold on to the football, they're the better team, and they're better than Kansas City. And I think that they will win this game if they don't give Patrick Mahomes easy field position. They don't make mistakes and let Isaiah Pacheco run it down their throats right at the end, get a field goal here, get a touchdown there. I think as long as Josh Allen can hold on to the football, whether it's you know not throwing interceptions, he also fumbles the ball a lot when he gets sacked. If he can hold on to the football and possess it, I think Buffalo is the better team. And so I think that is the most important thing going into this week is for Buffalo is they just need a game from Josh Allen where he doesn't make mistakes. And I'm not convinced that he can do that because he's done that in a lot of big spots where he does turn the ball over. But I really do think, John, that Buffalo is the better team than Kansas City, and they just need to keep the football. Um, the other one that comes to my mind is Josh Allen. The other one is Jordan Love. Jordan yes. Love was awesome against Dallas. Awesome. you know, Almost a perfect quarterback rating. But he almost needs to be better. And it's weird to say because there were some throws that he made against Dallas that were great, but he also had a couple throws that were wide open. You think of the Luke Musgrave touchdown he had down the field? I mean, I think you and me could have made that throw down the field. He was that wide open. Jordan Love's going to have to make some tough tight window passes against that 49ers defense against the uh, if the Packers want any chance of uh, competing in that one. All right, I'm going to I'm going to go a little different. I think um you know, as I look at the Tampa Bay game and the Lions on Sunday. I think on Sunday the bigger performance that is a must have for their team is Baker Mayfield for Tampa Bay. I cuz I just that offense for the Buccaneers 23rd in the league on offense 17th, and they don't run the ball. They're 32nd in the NFL, rushing the football. Baker Mayfield has got to have a big game, or I think the Lions are going to run away with that one. And so I think the Buccaneers are heavily reliant upon Baker Mayfield having a great game. And then I agree with you about Jordan Love on Saturday. And I just think, you know, I'm hearing all this talk. This is a great 49ers defense. Hearing all this talk about how much better Love has been how much how he's playing better football, how there's a new dimension to his game. Well, it's time, I guess, for him to show it. I mean, Matt LaFleur talked about the growth of Jordan Love here. Listen to what he said. Jordan Love, wow. That was that's about all I can say, Pete, is wow. Um what he did and the poise he shows, the command he shows, the 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 touchdown pass to Dontavian Wicks. Um it was an all out look. We were obviously in the empty set for him to hang in there and get that throw, and Wicks made a hell of a catch. But those are those are things that uh, you, you just can't necessarily – you can try to coach it, but what a moment for him. Um, to me, that was a big-time play. It just shows the growth that he's had uh, from his first start versus KC to now. Um, just so proud and happy for him. Uh, he is he he is he's a dude. He is a real dude. Matt Lafleur knows that Jordan Love has got to be confident going into you, this game. Do you find it interesting with the Packers? Because my dad's a Packer fan. He loves Jordan Love. He he was on him when he wasn't having a great season. He told me he said, "Stephen, he goes, you know, I watch these podcasts and they're saying they're putting Jordan Love in the right spots." It's interesting to me, John, that the Packers at the end of Aaron Rodgers' tenure in Green Bay weren't as good with Matt LaFleur because it seemed like he he was uh Rodgers had his fingerprints all over the offense. You know, they'd call the play call and he would direct all this traffic. Whereas Jordan Love, LaFleur's calling the play call. Love's running the play and it's working very yeah. well right now. I find that very interesting that, you know, it's almost one of those things where 
you know, the offensive mind of Matt LaFleur and the offensive mind of Aaron Rodgers, they were both too good for one another, and they both couldn't coexist, where now you look at Jordan we're Love. stubborn. Yeah. I, stubborn. I, I mean, you know, may, you know, maybe Aaron Rodgers didn't want to do what Matt LaFleur wanted to do. Yeah, now you got a younger guy, Jordan Love, who's just willing to intake all this knowledge, and it is working very well for the Packers. And I think you're right with Jordan Love. Like, if he has a good game, that Packers offense is dangerous, and I think that they may have a chance here against the 49ers as long as Jordan Love has that A game. He has to have an A game because, you know, as I look at the Packers, they, they're leading rushers under 700 yards for the season. You know, and I and I think it's no disrespect to Brock Purdy, who had a great year, was mentioned as an MVP candidate for a good portion of the year. But the 49ers' best offensive players are Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel and George Kittle. I mean, like, you know, he's got weapons. Jordan Love has got to do a lot of this himself. He's got 32 touchdown passes. They're going to they're gonna need a big game from him, and... They actually, I think he's a pretty good matchup for the 49ers pass rush in that, you know, he can move a little bit. And so I do think the Niners are going to win the game, and I don't think the Packers will be much running the ball. So that's why I think Jordan Love's got to have a huge game for them to stay in this thing and uh, and make it a game. But um, I disagree a little bit on, on Josh Allen because I think, to me, you know, he's a great player. So is Patrick Mahomes. But to me, so much of that Kansas City-Buffalo matchup comes comes down to other people. Buffalo's defense, Buffalo's ability to run the ball, um, you know, the weather. And, and I'm thinking about all of those things. And I'm not really going, like, Josh Allen needs to throw four touchdown passes. Or, but, I, you know, I guess what you said was he just needs to avoid throwing three interceptions and, and having that bad game. And I, I just think on Sunday the bigger emphasis, it's not Detroit's quarterback, it's it's Baker Mayfield. Can Tampa win that game? Can Tampa end the Cinderella season of the Detroit Lions? Yeah, you're right on that. If they are to end the, you know, to go into Detroit and win that game, you're right. It's going to be Baker Mayfield because that running attack with Rashad White, it's not, it's not great. And they do have weapons on the outside. You know, that's the thing. Chris Godwin, really good receiver. Mike Evans, really good receiver. Detroit has been vulnerable this season. So you're right. If Baker goes out there and he slings it around, maybe that that's how Tampa can stay in that game. Um, I just, and, and, you know, we didn't even talk about Jared Goff. Like, I just don't think it's really necessarily on him. Um, as you said, you know, Patrick Mahomes, we know he's going to put up a good performance no matter what. It's going to be on the receivers. What about can the Texans the game? Can the t- I mean, are you looking at all at the Texans game and going, hey, they need they need C.J. Stroud to have a fantastic game to be in that? That thing. was my other thought was C.J. Stroud. He was, he was on my thought process, too, because I do think – if the Texans are to compete, he's going to have to have, a, have an elite game because that running tech isn't great as well, and the defense has struggled, but D'Amico Ryans gets them going. So, yeah, I think Stroud's going to have to have another big game um, throwing the football. The thing that I – you know, I, maybe put C.J. Stroud not in the top for me, John, and put Jordan Love and Josh Allen is C.J. Stroud has these playmaker receivers and Nico Collins last week that we saw. He just kind of dumped out little screen passes to him and let Nico do all the work. So I think there is some potential where – they can just throw it out to their playmakers, that wide receiver, Nico Collins especially, and he can make some plays that CJ Stroud doesn't necessarily have to make the pinpoint throw, where I think with the Packers and Jordan Love, Love's going to have to throw the ball down the field, and he's going to have to pinpoint some things. All right, here's a question. I watched Brock Purdy with everybody watching. 49ers were playing the Ravens earlier this season. It was, all the MVP talk was at a, at a, at a height for, for Brock Purdy, and he had a horrible game, and he couldn't do anything right. And, you know, concussed, whatever, bad game. Which starting quarterback has the greatest potential to implode this weekend? Oof. I like that question. Because um, good I quarterbacks think, can implode. I it think, can happen. It can I, happen to any of them. 
I kind of I think it's Jared Goff. I think Jared Goff has a chance to implode. Todd Bowles, he blitzes most in the NFL. Percentage-wise, I mm. looked this up. The bl- the Buccaneers blitz more than any other team in the NFL. Jared Goff, not mobile. Jared Goff has had struggles this year, especially against the Chicago Bears earlier this year when they put pressure on him. There's a chance where the Buccaneers get some pressure on Jared Goff with all the blitzes, and there's a pick-six opportunity. So I-, I think it's Jared Goff who had a nice game last week against the Rams. I think the way the Bucks' defense is, it could be either hit or miss, where Goff has a huge game or Goff has a game where he just throws you know two, three picks and puts Baker Mayfield and the Bucks' offense in good positions. I, I am looking at the defenses. Um, I am thinking that the San Francisco defense has the potential to give Jordan Love a very long day. You know, sometimes the stage is too big for the play, and I think that potential exists in two games is it is it cj stroud having a bad game against the ravens defense is it jordan love having a bad game against the niners defense i think baker mayfield goff mahomes allen i think there's enough experience on sunday that you don't have an implosion but keep an eye on saturday's games